This is exactly right. Listen, we're all SVU fans. We love a family drama. We love a mystery to solve. And you got to get hooked into a story with the details. You need the visuals. You need the storylines with the twists and the turns. And that is what June's Journey has and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young girl on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murderer. Dun, 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 dun. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. The game is filled with all these beautiful detailed scenes from the 20s, like lavish estates and gardens. And of course, little hidden clues are everywhere. There's twists, turns, catchy tunes. It all takes you deep deeper into this storyline. And if you play well enough, you can make it into the detective club. And there you can chat with other players and even compete with or against them, which is pretty exciting. And you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed. And can you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. Okay, love that. And guess what? It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Of the Law & Order franchises, SVU is considered especially watchable. We are the amateur detectives who kind of investigate the vicious felonies these episodes are based on. These are our stories. Dun-dun! Hello and welcome to That's Messed Up, an SVU podcast. My name, as always, is Kara Clank. And I'm Lisa Traeger. Hello. Every week we talk about an episode of SVU, the true crime it's based on, and then we talk to a guest from the episode. Jam-packed, baby. Yeah. And we got a long one this week. This was a long one. We go on some tangents. You guys aren't (laughs) surprised, so... I don't know. It didn't seem long when I listened to it, honestly. I was enjoying <laughs> it. Scam likely. There's been an uptick in fucking Scams. scam calls, emails. I yeah. might have to start a new email account. I, I, it's nonstop. It's nonstop. And they're sending things where it's like, there was a charge on your card. Click here to confront. I'm like, this is something that would get me. Thank God I, Tricky you know, shit. Tricky, tricky fishing. Before I respond to anything, I send a screenshot to my sister because I just am like, is this real or fake? Is my social security number been compromised? I just can't tell. Guess what? They're never emailing you about that. They're yeah. never emailing you to tell you that your social security has been compromised. Well, we got to talk about the number one thing. Your birthday yesterday. It was. Fun. Oh, yeah. Before we hopped on with um, Hannah and Annalise, I was telling them about how... I overdid it a little bit and I had to lie down. (laughs) Yeah, you definitely had to lie down. But it was also you were so close. Like we were leaving in 10, 15 minutes and you just collapsed. I was like, I just need to lie down for 15 minutes before we get into a car to go home. But it was amazing. (laughs) My friends are the best people. They got a car service to pick me up and take pick us up, take us to this hotel. We sat by the pool. We had drinks. We had food. It was amazing. I had the best day. It was so awesome. And then people sent me flowers. People sent me cupcakes. You guys all wrote such lovely messages on the Instagram. I had the best day. 
It was nice when I got home too because of my little lie down. My total lie down with the 15 minutes at the pool plus the 30, 45 minutes home was about an hour. So I did um, sober up so that I could be around my children, which was good. They were really cute when they signed. They were like, Mom. And I was like, Oh, this is cute. I'm glad I'm spending some time with my kids on my birthday. Just the right amount of time, two hours before bedtime. What did you do <laughs> at night? We ordered food from a plate from Joy, a place that I know you enjoy. I ordered as well. Joy too. You did? I did. I ordered ah! Joy last night in bed. <laughs> yeah, but we I didn't get Joy. my. I didn't get the thousand layer pancake like I normally do since we had multiple pizzas at the pool. I was like, I'll stay healthy and get shrimp wontons. Jk. <laughs> <laughs> I actually couldn't finish my pancake. And I was like, why can't I finish this? And then I was like, oh, I ate so much at the pool. <laughs> oh my I God. I love pool food. I love a club scene. I love pool. Yeah. Uh, refreshments. Yeah. What is it? Uh, res- not recession stand. What is that called? Concessions. concessions. Yeah, concessions. <laughs> I love concessions at the pool or like country club food. Not that. Why I are they called concessions? I don't know. A concession is when you concede something. I don't know. Maybe you're like, oh, I guess I'm eating. It's the fourth yeah. quarter. <laughs> I've conceded to the dogs. <laughs> and you knew the bartender. The bartender went above and beyond. He was yes. really, he was good. The bartender was so cool. And he knew we had a friend in common. So he gave us some stuff for free and was, oh, it yeah. was really cool. He gave us some runs. I didn't realize how hammered I was, but I did take, I think, four shots alone. Because none of you would drink with me. I didn't even know you were taking shots. I can't. Well, that's how that's how out of it I was. But I remember all of our conversations. I just remember at the end being like, I got to lie down. My stomach hurts. <laughs> <laughs> my problem is I was telling them this, too. I love mules. I love Moscow mules. I love any kind of like mule. And they just taste like nothing. And so I just drink and drink and drink them. And then it's like, oh, you've just had a lot of sugar and a lot of alcohol. And it's... um. It always hits you. So, you know, Charlie's Tacos by my house, the food truck, the red one. Yes. Yes. So they have a queso taco always on their truck. Right. And oh. it's, um, it's basically a quesadilla, but in a hard shell. <gasps> I want that. Right. But there's meat in it in the picture. And she goes, you want this meat? I go, yeah, I'll take that meat. I'll try it. And then I Google it later. And it was donkey. And <gasps> I'm not like shading anyone for eating donkeys. I just do not want to eat a donkey. And I was Wait a minute. bombed out. You ate an Eeyore taco? Hold on. Yeah. How was, how, what was, the, it was like a word in Spanish and then you Googled it and it was donkey? Yeah, it was like barrio or something. And I was like, yeah, I'll take it. I'll try it. I trust you guys. Um, and it was good. But I was like, next time I'll get it with steak. I don't know. But not that a cow is less worthy of love. You ate ass meat. I did. And I have a friend who's very connected with donkeys. Like it's kind of her like power guide. I don't know. She like when she does, dr- there's a lot of donkeys in her life. And so okay. I think of her and I just am like, I don't want to eat her hero animal. I mean, we talked to Mary Stewart Masterson. She has too many at your donkeys. I can't believe you ate one of them. That's really yeah, fucked up. It is. <laughs> it was fucked up. They should uh, just make sure it says donkey. No, they can speak their language if they want. Um, but I will not be getting it again. But I liked the idea of a Chris, you know, a quesadilla taco. So wait, did thing. that story remind you of my story because it was mule? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Just making sure I know how you got there. <laughs> but you got it right away. Yeah, mule to donkey. Yeah. Horse. I mean, I want to meet a Shetland pony before I die. That's definitely on my goals list. They're in Scotland. You know, uh, Michelle Buteau just met Teddy the Shetland, one of the most famous. Oh, no, Michelle Collins. It was Michelle Collins. Oh, Michelle yeah. Collins Michelle Collins met Teddy. is always in the UK. Yeah. Ooh, she that's met Teddy. Huge. 
I've seen that pony on on the internet. I miss it. In my hometown, you could like, I think it was like $5 and you can ride up a, a little pony three times around in a circle. You had a little, a little uh, baby Sebastian or whatever it was called. <laughs> little Sebastian. Yeah. Wait, have I told my Retta story on this? I don't think have so. Have I told you the Retta story? No. I do not know Retta personally. I'm just a fan from Parks and Rec. And I was doing Benson Ball, this comedy festival in DC. And the people who are running the fest... They were like, oh, my God, we're going to surprise her. And we got a miniature horse we're going to bring on stage. And I go, I don't think she's going to like that. And they go, no, 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 we're going to surprise her with this horse. She's going to love it. I go, I don't think she's going to love it. I would I would run it by her. I get a sense she's not going to like a, ho- a live animal being brought onto the stage in the middle of her act. But, you know, have at it, guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I'm watching the show. They bring out this horse. She's not having it. Um, So she's like, OK. I'm cool. But then they couldn't get rid of the horse because the horse was scared of going down the stairs. So then all these people had to try to. So she so the show is interrupted. And then we're now watching people push this horse down the stairs. So and you were right. Of course I was right. Oh, my God. (laughs) That is that's terrible. But it was a really uh, fun festival and they brought us on a pirate ship with an open bar. It was like a fun time. They just, you know, that was a faux pas, I think. A pirate ship in D.C. Wow. Yeah. And we took like a picture, you know, giving the, you know, the thing, a hand job. You know what I mean? When I was working on Bar Rescue, one of their biggest episodes that I had to write jokes for when I did the pop up episodes was this bar in the DC area, like in right outside of DC, I think in either Maryland or Virginia, this bar, there was a pirate bar and they, the guy from bar rescue is like, you got to rebrand this. Nobody wants to go to a fucking pirate bar. And the woman just wouldn't do it because like she loved the pirate lifestyle. So she let John Tapper redo her bar. And then like a day later, she did put it all back to pirate. Well, I was just talking to someone who said, fuck John Taffer and bar rescue. Hopefully that doesn't fuck with your money. Oh no, I'm never going to work there again. Tell me what happened. <laughs> and I said, what's up? It was Shane Torres. I was um, at a comedy festival in Denver this weekend. I met um, some people. Thank you for coming out to the, sh- to the gigs. But um So he was saying that a lot of the places actually like he doesn't have a high success rate and he actually fucks up bars and takes away their like personality and um, like unique factors and makes it kind of generic and not interesting. And there was a bar he loved in Seattle and they fucked it over and then they like changed it back because they lost all this money. So like he um, I guess isn't actually that good at what he does. Wow. I'm wondering how Tabitha's salon takeover if um, all of Tabitha's girls are doing good. Yeah, I was going to say, because sometimes it's like sometimes what he does help people do, though, is like he had a couple that I saw that were like alcoholics and they needed to stop drinking at their own bar to have success. And he like helped them figure that out. So in that sense, but it doesn't always have to be like a full sometimes you just get to what's wrong with the person that's making the bar unsuccessful and not the decor, you know? Well, yeah, and also also treat your employees well. When it, that's number one. Um, yeah. But I th- it's also stage. I've only seen one episode, but it was like they caught an employee or maybe this was undercover. But I don't know what it was, but like someone came in and was trying to like sell concert tickets and a guy from the like the store gave him a bunch of meat and they caught him like trying to buy concert tickets with meat. And I'm like, this has to be staged. This can't be real. That someone's like, I don't know. Doing this. Definitely. Almost everything we watch on television is staged, but and anyway. I, don't really, I make television and I still get tricked. <laughs> I show up to set and I'm like, wait, what? 
Okay, yeah. we gotta start. We gotta. We start gotta start just because it's a long episode today, and we don't want you guys to. I don't know. They turn like us, us off, but you know, I know you guys always. Sometimes you guys say we like the long ones. I don't get why everyone got mad at Sally Field for going. That you guys like me. You really like me. It's like she won two Oscars. What's wrong with? That? I don't think that they got mad at her. I think it was like a meme moment, even though memes didn't exist yet. I think it was just like she was like quoted and like. No, kind of te- I think it was like a humiliating moment that she had to live. Really, down. that's the vibe I get. Humiliating for me is I met her son one time and thought he was somebody different. And I said, hi, Dave, uh, we've met before. We And he was like, I'm not Dave. Anyway, let's move on. <laughs> let's get the show started. All right. So today we will be talking about Pretend season eight, episode 21. And I'm sure a lot of you listening are like, I requested that. And you did. And he listened <laughs> to you. It was your idea. So um, amazing news. It starts with a man with a mustache and a flashlight checking out what's that? Like, and it looks like a construction, messy home building area. And uh, the guy is like, where are you? Where are you? He's looking for some. What is he looking for? It's his phone. <laughs> Uh, but it was a great fake out. Like you think it's a kid, yeah. but it's his phone. Um, he finds it in a toolbox. So he was there in the day and he makes a call to his wife to tell Cheryl he left his phone at the salvage site and she thinks he's lying. And he's like, I was just watching the game. And he goes, how can I avoid your calls if I didn't have my phone? And so they're just, you know. marriage jokes this is like um so it's relatable to the people that were watching cheryl sounds like a real ball buster yeah cheryl's a ball buster or he's a you know ignores her maybe he's yeah yeah so yeah Uh, here i think cheryl's a bitch but who knows what this guy's been up to in his life that makes cheryl so suspicious you know what i mean but he is telling the truth but he notices something's weird there's a light on in the basement but no one should have been there and he tore out all the light fixtures earlier in the day um but he makes a giant mistake to go look and see what's up and as he's going through the door flings open and he falls to the ground and enters a man and probably one of the scariest things you can see if you're in an abandoned salvage site in the middle of the night for no reason is a man in a black leather simp mask okay is that what that's called a simp mask like simps wear it it could be an executioner mask maybe i don't know oh no no i didn't know if that was like the the proper like name i was like thinking like it's like a freaky sexual lucha libre lucha libre kind of thing but i don't know what the real name is Um, yeah like i don't but i don't know what you call that like yeah an executioner mask maybe is what i think too but yeah but like you if you're wrestling you don't want to wear leather on your face right Right. It's more stretchy. It's more that's more of a spandexy stretchy thing. Yeah. yeah. You're like exercising. You don't want to wear a leather face thing. But I just think of um, when I think of a simp, I think of Pulp Fiction. That's yes. with Vin Rain. So the gimp. Yeah. So it's gimp, not simp. <laughs> but what's I didn't simp? know what simp was. I thought it was, I like, thought oh, I was you- saying gimp. I thought it was simp because like, you know, people are always like you you guys simp so hard for Maloney or something like people say it's like what um, I don't know. It is like a submissive word. So maybe it's not even that far off. But. A simp means a man who is submissive towards like a dominant woman, hoping the woman will like win them over. OK, so a yeah. simp is a similar term. It, you could. Interchange yeah, that's yeah. why I was like, oh, wow. Lisa's like introducing me to this new term. But I do think of the gimp from. For sure. Um, I think of <laughs> I think of Pulp Fiction. Uh, yeah. Bring immediately. out the gimp. In the Simpsons 22 short stories about Springfield, one of the stories is a play on that scene, which is oh, wild yeah. for a cartoon, you know? A yes. full rape dungeon I saw that scene. I, 
I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast, but I did see a Pulp Fiction when I was in eighth grade. And in my opinion, that was too soon. I know, Lisa, you were seeing all kinds of movies like that when you were like eight. But like that for me, I was like, what am I watching? Like I was like, we got to go. Pulp Fiction's chill. I mean, you know, the shootings or whatever. But yeah, that dungeon scene is pretty. um, I don't want to say vulgar, but yeah, torture, rape. You don't want that for eighth grade. Oh, okay. Wait, I'm Googling this right now. And I'm thinking that this has bad connotations. We should not be using the word gimp, but we just, we only know it from Pulp Fiction, but now we know it's actually has some bad, bad background, but we won't be using it going forward. But that is the kind of mask if you've seen Pulp Fiction. Yeah. We should come up with a new uh, name. (laughs) I think executioner is kind of like, that is kind of good. The way you said like executioner mask. Okay. Um, the man screams, uh, but we don't know what's what because we cut to Elliot. So, you know, we did chit chat. I'm sorry. Where we were was the our mustached man's on the ground. But then they cut to Elliot playing games with kids in his home. It's like a little poker party. But daddy gets a call and he's got to go. But the kids understand, you know. The kids are also throwing out a lot of like poker terms that I was like, what the fuck are you guys talking about? They're like, you had me up the river over the bridge. You got to go down double on a 42. I was like, what are you? I don't know what's going oh, on. Oh, The river is the last card that gets flipped over. Oh, and hold you knew on. all of this. Yeah. You knew the you. I forgot you're from like a card shark family. Okay. Well, no, well, poker is not really Russian, but my brother-in-law, you know, he recently no, you, won. Yeah, you play. I wasn't thinking it was a Russian thing. No, I'm a follower. That's what I've learned in the past year because of editing and RuPaul's Drag Race. I have no original thoughts. I just do what anyone else does. <laughs> you know what I mean? I didn't like Olivia Rodrigo. The Joyces did. Guess what? I'm doing it. Emma Chamberlain <laughs> wore hoops. I bought hoops. Like, I truly have no original thoughts. Um, but poker was huge when I was in high school. It was like the Negranu, the bra- Like I, I remember what the World Series of Poker was huge. So I would play till four or five in the morning on fucking school night. Like, I was out playing poker in homes often in high school it like took over my life like you know because i'm a trends follower i bet that's fun when you go to vegas yeah but i lose yeah like the men i've only played i i've only played poker like hold them in a casino in lake tahoe and the dominican republic but the guys at the table i truly felt it was i was the luckiest woman in the world every guy at the table was a different ethnicity and they all made fun of each other the whole time and they all were good (laughs) friends so i felt like i was in a cartoon like i couldn't believe it it was one of every kind of person all roasting each other and they liked my presence so they strung me along and then i think they all like were like let's get her out of here and took my money (laughs) so that's the thing with hold'em like when you are playing with people that know how to play it is like they're gonna take your money yeah 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 that's because when i play blackjack the guys at the table always kind of help me a little bit they're always like i would stay or i would hit well because your success has nothing to do with their success right exactly it's a different kind of game totally yeah um okay so then we cut from poker to um like a really bloody converse shoe on a mattress attached to a man the blood is coming from the crotch area of the victim and the victim is also in a leather face mask and there's blood on his chest and then we see like a baseball bat covered in barbed wire it's a scene 
credits, baby. And then we're back to the scene of the crime and it's Benson and Stabler um, with Melinda and they're investigating, obviously. And we find out that the femoral artery was severed. And if and that's like in your thigh area. And uh, if that gets cut, you bleed out within five minutes, like you die immediately. And so the cause of death, Melinda says, is hemorrh- hemorrhagic shock, hemorrhage whatever a hemorrhage and some shock because you're bleeding too much (laughs) wait can i just bring something up lisa that i think you would appreciate do you remember the scene in dexter i think it was the opening scene of one of the of the season that had john lithgow in it and he's got a woman in the bathtub and he just cuts her femoral artery in the bathtub yeah my friend Pat like met that actress and was like right before she did that and was like, yeah, I'm going to be on Dexter in a couple days. And then he tuned in and that was the scene he said he saw. And he was like, can you imagine just going around and telling all your friends like tune in to me on Dexter? And the first thing is just you getting bled out in the first minute of the sh- of the episode. <laughs> like, I just thought you would like a little Dexter. Tidbit. I 100% do. It is one of the greatest seasons of television. I would say that John Lithgow Dexter season. I told you he got on the subway during one with me during that season. And I couldn't make eye contact with him. I was so scared. I was like the Trinity killer just got on the subway and I'm going to die. <laughs> it was an incredible episode of television. And I've read um, in some fan things, whatever the new thing of Dexter is the showrunner from seasons one through four season five through eight they had someone else and so Ah. we're getting the original fucking showrunner for this new um season so that's pretty exciting cool cool. I just watched the like longer trailer that came out oh of course and I'm excited well it's also interesting when we talk about our lives I was talking to someone recently and I was like oh yeah so then the showrunner and they're like what is that and I'm like why don't you know what that is like but (laughs) it is uh (laughs) I guess it is industry terms yeah and then outside of you know femoral arteries and dexter and blood and sadness marishka does have beautiful bangs okay so oh i love it yeah i love this look yeah bangs and like a little updo it looks really nice and then melinda gives us more scoop and the victim was hit with a bunch of light tubes and it's such thin glass that it breaks into fragments and so he had like cuts and pieces all over his body from it and you know there's a lot of ideas it could be a consensual bdsm gone wrong but benson is like yeah but the hands aren't tied and that's kind of so we're like benson are you what are you doing in your private life that you know the intricate rules of bdsm play um that it needs that, <laughs> like oh the hands aren't tied this isn't it but then they take the mask off and the boy looks 15 years old no id so young yeah. so dead so like what the fuck um stabler asks who brought him to torture him like we gotta find out so they're talking to the mustache man who found the body and he's explaining himself and they're suspicious of him and he's like i have a contract with the fucking city i take shit out of buildings that are about to be demolished i took some cool windows and so the security bars off the windows are gone and that's where the leather boys entered like go away i don't know what you want from me um and then there's a woman and she's running towards the building with a dog and ice tea joins her outside and she explains um and she has like this beret and a poodle this is my future also i <laughs> this is me um and she goes listen word on the street there's some torture who is gossiping this fast yeah that is really fast like pre i mean i what year was this i doubt this lady's on twitter is all i'm saying i don't think she found out about it that quickly like yeah it's like i heard there was some satanic uh undertones and it's like they just the blood is not even dry 
Yeah. And she's like, rape, Satan, what's up? And um, I says, don't believe anything you hear. But she goes, I know who did it. It's Darren Tolson. He lives at the end of the block. And I've seen flyers with his face on it. And they're up every morning and ripped by the afternoon. And he is a sex offender. And that's that. And so this is a neighborhood where they're harassing a sex offender. And, you know, this guy did target young boys. So let's see what's up. So they're talking to the landlord who said that this guy, Darren, is a model tenant. And Ice makes a joke like, "Okay, well, he modeled for a mugshot. LOL. (laughs) Um, And the landlord is a criminal justice reform queen. He's like, "Uh, I don't know what you want, but if without a warrant, I'm not letting you in where like and where do you want felons to live? The streets like I'm fighting for what's right. And it's true. It's like everything is so complicated in this world. But if someone does serve their time, like you, you, they got to live somewhere. Yeah. And he's like, I don't I don't rent to families with kids, he said. So it's like he's not putting anyone in danger immediately in the building. Yeah, I didn't even connect that. Yeah. So this like landlord, he looks like a scuzzy skateboard type guy. But in reality, he's like this criminal justice maven. I love he's a criminal justice reform queen. (laughs) (laughs) I've been saying that a lot. I feel like you said it. And now I can't stop saying that. (laughs) And our friend kept going, go off queen. And now I can't stop. No. Uh, And I sent you, I told you that Rosie, when she was posing for a photo, she goes, I look great. And you were like, we love a confident queen. Yeah. I I hate, again, I'm a follower. No originals. I just like (laughs) any accent, any slogan, any words goes into my brain. You have so many original thoughts, but this is not the place for me to convince you of that. So let's go. Well, no, but like (laughs) when I'm on the road with people, I end up talking. Talking like that. It's just brains are so wild. Brains in outer space in the ocean. We know nothing about them. Um, there's spray paint <laughs> on the door that says pervert. And the landlord goes, maybe you should arrest that flyer bitch for vandalism. How about that? The pervert is not home. And the landlord says he will not open the door without a warrant. So they say, fine, we'll come back at 4 a.m. and wake you all up. And he does not want to wake up early. I could tell by his flannel. He likes to sleep in. He goes and he everything goes out the window. All of his secret, like all of his fuck the police attitude is like, actually, he works at this bakery on Mott Street. Go visit him at night. (laughs) So there's a man kneading dough. And Benson's like, wow, strong hands. You love to work with your hands. And then Maloney makes this giant leap and goes, goes oh is that how you pound flesh with those hands and it's like back off guys um (laughs) i hate when they put me in a position to like defend a sex offender it's like so (laughs) annoying like i would like to hate people that you know attack children but now you're making me like sad for this guy who's just trying to need bread to live in a shitty apartment he acts defensive, the guy, but he's chill. And Maloney's like, usually when people are innocent, they don't act calm. You're too calm. And usually when they're innocent, they stop what they're doing. But he can't because he's kneading dough for eight minutes. Because if you don't for eight minutes, the bread won't rise. And that is awesome. Whoever, yeah, we need to see who wrote this episode. Like, fucking beautiful. It's yeah. so beautiful. Um, So they show him the horrific crime scene photos. He says he does not know who the victim is. And uh, they're like, oh, so one of your neighbors turns up dead and it's just a coincidence. And he goes, oh, she sent you. And so the she is Sonia Prickland. Ten years ago, he gets out of prison and then her son disappears the next day. And so everyone is like, it's you, it's you, it's you, it's you, it's you. 
And now she bothers him everywhere that he goes and won't leave him alone. But it's like her kid's dead. What do you want her to do? Play part cheesy? Like she's, <laughs> she's, this is her new hobby. So I thought it was going to be the woman from the hat from earlier, but it's not, it's a different woman. Did you think the same thing or you knew it was going to be? Different yeah, I people? wasn't. No, I wasn't sure. I thought maybe, yeah, it was her. Um, so the lady, when they go talk to him uh, and she looks like a theater queen, but, um, she, I was just going to say, she really looks like a, um, sad mom. Like, like she has the SVU sad mom. Where's my baby look to her. So the lady is like, he took my son and they're like, it's not proven. And she goes, I don't care. It's him. He snatched him the first time he saw him when he was on a bike, he should be in jail and he's not. So I watch him. Since the boy found as a teen, the mom is like, well, Joey would have been 16 this year. So they go down to see if like maybe that's her son and he's been missing for all these years. And she starts crying and going, that's Joey. That's Joey. Um, I can't believe he was alive all this time. That bastard had him. And she cries into Stabler's chest, which. Jealous. Um, so <laughs> the victim is Joey Brigland, I guess. And they're going to go pick up the bread guy, even though there is no evidence at all. So then we cut to the precinct and Ice and Munch leave to go, uh, you know, do work. They're busy boys. And a teen <laughs> boy comes in with fluffy bangs and a puffy coat. And he <laughs> says he needs to talk to someone about Riley Kusky murder. And they're like, what? What are you talking about? And he says, that boy you found last night. They're like, no, he's been ID'd as another boy. And the guy's like, well, no, that's Riley Kusky. And Ice goes, how do you even know? And the, bo the boy lifts up and in his hand is a tape recorder. And he says, I taped him getting killed. Done, done. That is. <laughs> that is a done, done. Yeah. Munch takes a deep ass breath and Cragen's holding a remote about to show Benson and Stabler the video and us, you know, as the viewer, uh, the murder tape. So it's Riley shirtless in the video going, hey, get ready to watch this video. And so they're wrestling and the guys are in leather hitting each other. And then the artery gets cut and Riley's like, whoa, I need to lay down, turn off the camera. And so it was a stage fight with real weapons. So it's scary. So it's like extreme wrestling, fighting, whatever. Um, and this is an accident. So Scott is the name of the boy that came in with the tape. And so Benson, Cragen and Stabler listened to him talking um, with Munch and Ice, um, who's Jake. Oh, so Jake and him were fighting with this guy's car. No, this is what I want to know. Then who's Jake? The mom said, this is my son, Jake. So where's Jake? Do they ever go back to this? No. Or do we just assume that this woman made a false ID because she's hysterical? I also thought his name was Joey. Yeah, you're right. Jake is the third person because he says that Jake and Riley were fighting and Scott was filming it. Oh, you're right. Okay, well, that's my question still stands. Yes. Who's Joey? Where's Joey? <laughs> Why did, like, when I learned how to write shit, not that I'm a professional like these SVU people, but you don't need two J names. Okay, why yeah. are you Jake and Joeying us? Like, that's <laughs> not, that, it's Do confusing. Do not Jake and Joey us. <laughs> um, I just, I, I learned that note early on in learning how to write scripts. You want to keep... All the names, the names very separate. Yeah. Unless it's a Duggar situation, you know, <laughs> or a Kardashian, but it's part of it. So basically, Scott 
is the boy in the coat. And he says that Jake and Riley were fighting. Scott just filmed it. And um, that Jake didn't want to say anything and threatened to kill him if he told. But it's just an accident. Like, I had to tell Riley is my fucking best friend. Um, So they got to find Jake, which is Riley's friend, not Scott. Scott's like, I never met him until yesterday. That's Riley's friend. Jake's told me not to. I mean, clearly these are lies, okay? That's why we uh, don't have the story straight because it's not a straight story, okay? Right. This guy is lying. So if we seemed confused, it's Scott's fault. (laughs) And Elliot is like, the camera was stable. No one was holding it. And the only time it wasn't stable is when the other masked opponent walked off camera. It's you. We know it's you. We've been detectives for over a decade. Yeah. He says, no, 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 no. And Elliot goes, DNA will tell us who the other guy is. So stop. And then Scott starts tearing up. And he's like, Riley was my best friend. And then I uh, then tells Maloney, we're just taking testimony and he's 16. So we can't talk to him like this, which shocking for SVU to follow the rules and respect the people. And so and so basically Jake was an, a fictional made up person. Yeah. Jake was not existent. Jake's but not Joey, existent. where the fuck is Joey? Go on. <laughs> Poor Joey. Elliot says you need to call your parents and then we'll talk about what happened to your friend. And then um, it just cuts straight to trial part 17. We have our friend Barry Bostwick, a.k.a. Oliver Gates, as the defense attorney. Um, you guys probably know him as the white hair, classic, rich looking man. Yes. Um, so that's him. And Novak's chatting to the jury like, oh, he looks like a good boy. Now look at Scott cleaned up. But you'll see this tape and you'll see what an evil bitch this guy really is. And then the defense is playing a game of like, this is consensual sports. It can't be murder if you like kill someone in the ring, like of a boxing ring. Um, So like if it's an accident, there's no intent, there's no crime. So both have really good points. Now we have Scott's psychiatrist on the stand, and he is a man that's been in SVU four episodes, different people. His name's Tibber Feldman, but I knew I knew him. I I knew I knew him, and I do. He's from Devil Wears Prada. Um, he was the head of Elias Clark of like oh. the Condi Nast. So he was the guy trying to like get Miranda Priestley out and like find someone that was cheaper. And so that if he looked familiar to you, he uh, was the CEO. Yes, yes totally. And so on the stand, the psychiatrist says that Scott's been feeling depressed and he's been seeing him for about a year. And um, the reason he's into this game is because he likes to get pain. So he's a masochist, not a sadist. He does not get off on giving pain, but actually getting it. But so he's just trying to feel something, anything at all. But Novak's not buying it. And he goes, well, if he's so sad, why doesn't he just cut himself? And it's like, how is this real life right now? (laughs) Like, (laughs) If he was really a masochist, he would be cutting himself. But, you know, she's doing her job. She's doing her job now. um, So, you know, court's over. Novak's walking in the lobby of the court and a pigtailed young woman in denim and a little backpack runs in and she's looking for Novak. She goes, I asked a court officer. I'm looking for you. They told me I can find you. The girl introduces herself as Cassandra Sullivan, Riley's girlfriend. And I love her voice. I like wish I've always remembered her voice, her little voice. Like she's always like. Totally. Uh, She says that Scott is her best friend. And she's like, is he going to jail? Like, he's going to jail, isn't he? So basically, this girl is Riley's girlfriend. But since Riley and Scott are best friends, you know, Scott is also her best friend. And so this is a really tough time for her. Novak said that the jury is back with the verdict and she can come see if 
you know, her friends going to jail or not. So Cassandra says some information that stops Novak in her tracks. And basically it's that uh, Scott keeps texting her that he's sorry and he wishes it was him and not Riley. So she goes with Novak to hear the verdict. Murder in the second, not guilty. Manslaughter, not guilty. Criminally negligent homicide, guilty. Did I try to look up the difference between manslaughter and criminally negligent homicide and all of that? I did. Was it confusing? Yes, I have nothing to share. No information. <laughs> it, it like it was so hard. That's why law school is so long and lawyers get the big bucks because I could I could not because there's also involuntary manslaughter. And so it's like all of these things are just too intricate for my ass. Yeah. So Scott sees Cassandra in the courtroom and he's like, wait, please. And she glares at him and runs off. And Novak's suspicious. So Novak goes to Cassandra's home and uh, she has a foster parent. So she's been in foster care. Is that a clue? Maybe yes, no, or just a fact. Um, so then Novak goes into the room and she explains as a foster kid, she goes to a lot of different schools and Riley was nice to her right away. And they like, you know, clicked immediately. Then uh, she asks, was it serious with you and Riley? And Cassandra says yes. And then now Novak does like the gay Prada shoe legally blonde moment and like tricks her and is like, so was it serious with Scott? And she looks stunned. And Novak basically is like, I saw the way he looked at you. He's in love with you. So like, don't even fuck with me. She tears up and nods. She says, yes, that her and Scott were dating on the side, but Riley did not know. And it only happened once, but he wouldn't let it go. But it might not be an accident. And then Cassandra drops a fucking bomb and goes, she knows it's not an accident. So as the kids say, that escalated quickly. do the kids say that i think that was the thing at one point i know but it is like i use gifts all the time but i thought it's because i'm young and hip and then really millennials actually send gifts moving gifts and the gen z make fun of us but this whole time i thought like oh look at me with my gifts and they're like oh you're old um emojis they also don't like that we use like the crying laughing face emoji they use the skull and cross but like they just don't want to be like us which is fine but i love sending gifts when you find a really perfect gift response it's a it's a great feeling well the greatest gift of all of course is iced tea dancing with a bowl of cereal yes Let's never Which forget. Which you did just send to somebody who had COVID. <laughs> I miss the COVID. I'm bad. I actually, um, you know, as a kid, it was always like, God, I'm such a loser. And now I do feel cool and I have a lot of friends and I'm like, this is too much. I don't need this. <laughs> I, I, it's so many texts, so many messages. I don't, yeah. I, I didn't even. People are checking in on you a lot. I imagine that your phone blows up a lot. It does. And I'm blessed because my whole life I was like, why can't people like me? And now that I do have a nice uh, group, a nice community, I'm like, I can't get I can't face I can't I'll be I can't FaceTime you right now. Like, I just can't. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sorry, I didn't read any of your text messages. I just responded with a GIF and you told me you had COVID. So my bad. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, wait. So how does Cassandra know that it's not an accident? So great segue. Damn, that was pretty impressive, Kara, getting me back on track. (laughs) So she said that in science, they learned about the femoral artery in class and that she was with Scott and they learned like how quickly someone can bleed to death if it's cut. And that was one week before the incident. 
the next scene is one of my favorite tropes ever, ever, ever. Chinese food takeout at the precinct. I think that would be my make a wish wish. I'm like, can I go to the set and eat Chinese food with this? The cast. The cast of SVU. Oh my God. Uh, while like there's things on the screen and like we do like a fake crime. Like that would be <laughs> knock on wood. Hopefully I'll never get a make a wish. Okay. <laughs> do they give make a wishes to people in their 30s? They've got what is it's not yeah. I think it's just for kids. There's gotta be an adult version <laughs> of that. It is called Dream Foundation. Okay. Sorry. I hope you get your dream foundation wish. No, I hope not, Kara. I want to stay healthy. I hope not. That's what I mean. I mean, that's what I mean. Sorry. I hope that maybe anyone listening will invite me to the set to eat Chinese food on it. Okay. Yes, Um, please. (laughs) She's, oh my God, crab rangoon. Uh-huh. But I just don't get like how you would eat Chinese food for lunch in the middle of the day and then chase down a criminal. Like that's I know, heavy. It's so it makes you take a nap. It makes no sense. I don't know how they're eating Chinese food midday. That is not a lunch food for me. Chinese food for me is it's Sunday Dinner. night. Yeah. The Oscars are on. Yeah. Let's binge eat. That's what yeah. I'm talking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not sensibly eating Chinese food for lunch. Nope. Even if you have a lunch special. I'd rather have sushi. Thank you. <laughs> um, Novak says we got fucked up and says everything she's learned. And these are some of my favorite moments when they give someone a deal like the case is, you know, double jeopardy, baby. So it's there. So there's opportunity. There's intent and double jeopardy. Like, fuck, this is such a good episode. Um, the max sentence of what happened in court is only four years and as little as probation. So Stabler's like, well, let's just try to get him the four year max. But Cassandra has to speak at the sentencing hearing, but she refuses because she feels guilt. Like it's her fault that Riley is dead. Baloney says, listen, then we need a confession. And guess what? I'll be the man to beat it out of him. <laughs> That's a joke. Okay. So they're at the high school and the boy and like Scott and his two friends are walking and talking poker and Maloney uh, poker of role again, a theme, a theme. Um, and then Maloney tells the other boys like, Oh, you got to watch out being friends with Scott. You don't know how, you know, his friendships don't really end that well. And he says, what's your problem, man? And they're like, we know you're banging your best friend's girl. So guy code. And he says, whatever. My one best friend is dead. The other won't speak to me. I don't care what happens to me. Take me to jail. I don't fucking care. I love him. He is very Gen Z. This is, this is a Gen Z kid. Like, yeah, slit my wrists into pieces. I don't care. So they didn't get a confession out of him like they thought, but it would be insane if they got like an after high school confession out of this guy. Um, so now they're pressuring Cassandra to testify. She's in her bedroom in a, pre- in a pink preppy collared shirt on her bed, lavender pillows. It's like a very teen room. There's a puffy hat like on the bedpost and posters. Um, and her phone made me rem- like nostalgic for the 90s it was like a cord it was just i want to hold that phone and my ass phone yeah oh i want it a clear one where you can see all the gears inside i love that i had it i got it at amazing savings (laughs) (laughs) and it meant a lot to me so she's saying that she let him on and so it's her fault, but I just loved Riley so, so much. And they're like, well, why did you cheat on him? And Riley dumped her. And so she was, because she was too needy and was so sad that she cried to Scott. So she was like crying to Scott, begging him to talk to Riley, but instead they hugged and then hooked up. 
Benson is saying, so Scott took advantage of you. But she says, no, I always feel so unwanted as a foster kid. And Scott made me feel like really wanted. So she's like pretty self-aware in a way um, Mm -hmm. of like knowing her feelings and why she was so into that. So her lips are so glossed during this, which is like. It reminds like, is this a Lancome juicy tube? Like, what did they use? <laughs> For sure, juicy tubes. <laughs> um, and of course, pigtails still, because she's a baby. So um, th- like her and Riley got back together the next day. So she really regrets it. And Benson says, if you want to make amends, like you should speak at the hearing. She tears up, she thinks, and agrees. And now it's time for the trial to begin again. So right not trial like sentencing sentencing. So Riley's parents make a statement and you know they're sad <laughs> their kids dead. And uh we have Judge Karen Tayton played by Patricia Callumber who Kara's from Westport Connecticut. Oh love it and I'm an old fan of Patricia Callumber Cal- because um she was in a show called Sisters that I watched kind of religiously when I was a kid that was Celia Ward, Swoozy Kurtz, Patricia Callumber and one other actress I can't remember. And it was these four sisters or five sisters that all had boy names. I think she was Georgie, Teddy, Alex. Well, um, yeah, they had 127 episodes and I had never heard of it. And I knew you probably watched it. Yes. Oh, I was so into sisters. It was like a nighttime soapy show about these sisters. And I just like loved it. Well, and you know who Swoosie is? Swoosie Kurtz. Swoosie Kurtz. She played the judge who sold teens to a teen jail for oh, money. Oh, yes. We're going to cover that one. Who didn't belong in jail. So that episode's called Crush. And Swoosie yeah. is a fun name. Yeah. And <laughs> I just, it, it makes the world seem so big because like, I just, I'm so into television and the fact that I have never even heard of a show that had 127 episodes. You know, what's weird, Lisa, it was on like Friday nights, which usually Friday night is like a TV graveyard. Well, like not you said, real, a show to Friday night. Well, right. But a drama, like a drama that was on at like 10, I think it was on nine or 10 on a Friday night. Like that's like, goodbye. We're about to cancel you. But that show just kind of lived on Fridays for a really long time. And I loved it. I would watch it when I was babysitting. Like, I don't know. It was all things that I was too. There was women cheating on their husbands and it was all shit that I was too young to be watching, but I was obsessed. What is Cela Ward known for? She was, she had another show, right? She was, famous. she was in the fugitive. She plays the wife who of Harrison Ford, who gets murdered in the fugitive. Which That's is one of my movie. favorite movies. And she's so beautiful. Cela Ward. Like I remember her sisters. She dated George Clooney and sisters and sisters. George Clooney was in oh it. Oh my she, God. They're together. Yeah. No, I, the fugitive is in my top 10. I can't believe I didn't put that together. I love that movie so much. And I love Mulaney's joke about it. Is he just going into my brain and telling jokes about everything I've ever loved? I don't understand. I think so. Um, so thank you for that sister's update. Mm-hmm. But she but she's she has been on a lot of episodes of SVU and I always am like Georgie. Yeah. yeah, she was in one of my she's been in 10 episodes. She was in trade. Which is with the coffee beans and the yes. pedo- and the real life pedophile, the, the real dad. life pedophile from Seventh Heaven, yes, baby. Um, so it's one Anne Warner from Legally Blonde is the son. Oh, yes, right? Yes. Or am I wrong? That's just off the top tip of my brain right now. I didn't is research it? it. I remember Warner. Maybe he is the son. I don't remember. I think it is. I we'll don't see. remember. So Riley's parents talk. They're clearly very upset. Their son got killed. It would be weird if they weren't upset. Um, but Novak is chatting with Benson and Stabler during the sad statement. And it's like, can you just not talk during these morning parents talking? 
But the foster mother has said that Cassandra left. So they have a problem. They need to find Cassandra. While they're looking for Cassandra, Scott explains to the court why they loved extreme fighting. They felt rejected from every other sport and really sucked at sports. But this was their way in. They really just loved beating each other up and they felt like gods. Um, He's at least okay that Riley died doing something he loved. And if I was his parents sitting there, I would lose it. Yeah. Yeah, he loved being in an abandoned, like bleeding out slowly on a dirty mattress. What the yeah. fuck? Getting hit by light tubes like Scott. And a barbed wire wiffle bat. Like, I don't think this is dying doing what he loved. <laughs> so fucked. It's like, I love watching SVU. I don't want to die watching SVU. And so that you guys can say, well, she died doing what she loved. You know? No. Uh, but, uh, he is sad and he said, he'll think about this forever. He gets five years probation and has to continue therapy. Um, and then while Novak and the detectives are like walking in the court steps, they get a call from who they think is Cassandra. And they're like, oh, great. Now she wants to call, but it's actually the foster mother and they have to meet Cassandra in the hospital. She got hit by a car. Dun, 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 dun. So Finn and Munch are looking at, um, at the CCTV guy footage of the car accident. And it was a black BMW. So they're looking out for that. And who does the car belong to? They zoom in and it's um, a driver. The, and the driver is one of Scott's friends that Maloney saw outside the high school. So Finn and Stabler don't even have to try that hard to get this idiot to crack. This is like T-ball for them. It's like so easy. (laughs) And the dad is like, what? Is she dead? Who cares? And it's like she has a broken leg and her jaw is wired shut. So like these parents um, and I don't know if you, you you were not you did not know our friend Lauren at this time, but our friend Lauren had her jaw wired shut for a while during our friendship. And it's brutal. I knew a girl in high school who had it and it seemed awful. And she was just like sad to be around. She had to like blend up burgers and drink them. And she was just wasting away in front of us, not being able to talk. And, um, and then even when the jaw's not wide, you can't really move it. I remember new year's like it, it was tough for her. So I'm, but she's I, great now. But. Yeah. <laughs> she's great. Her jaw is doing good. Um, <laughs> So they do tell this boy, they're like, listen, you're up for attempted murder, so you should talk. Um, but like you're in trouble, whether your dad thinks this is a big deal or not. And yeah. but it's also like, dad, get your kid a lawyer. Why are you even talking to the cops like it, these parents? Um, you'll know better. So they tell him he's up for an attempted murder charge. So you better talk. And he was like, listen, I wasn't even trying to kill her. I was just trying to rough her up a little bit. And it's like, stop talking to the cops. (laughs) (laughs) This dad sucks. He's like, whatever. She's not even dead. Tell him what you did. Like, what (laughs) the fuck? (laughs) And he said it's because he needed the money. This is where the gambling debts come in. Um, And he got $500 to do it. Who hired you? Obviously, it's Scott. So they arrest Scott and he had this done because he didn't want her speaking at the hearing. So he is a bad person and he's been playing us all along this whole time. Like, you don't just hit someone like, what does she know? What are you scared of? You're obviously lying, hiding shit. Mm. Yeah. What are these secrets? So Benson visits Cassandra in the hospital and she can barely speak. And of course, like, you know, some makeup bruising. Um, And, you know, they tell her like he can get 25 years for attempted murder. And like, you could have just only had probation or four years max. Like you're an idiot for trying to fucking run her over with a car. Uh, Before Benson can leave, a doctor grabs her to reveal some scoop. 
She says the admission records say that she's 16, but her jaw x-ray shows that she doesn't have buds, which are like a waiting area in your jaw, like for wisdom teeth. And they don't come out until adulthood, but she noticed that she had scars where the teeth were taken out. So she can't be 16. She has to be in her mid to late twenties, depending on the scar healing of the wisdom teeth. Do we actually feel our wisdom teeth like come in? I did. I had a lot of pain. Really? When they came in, when they like broke through? Yeah, but I waited forever. I got them done later in life. I was living in New York, so I was in my late 20s. Mm. So I don't know. I guess that's exactly I just what don't the doctor them. Said. I don't remember them. I just remember them being like in my mouth. Like I don't remember having like a teething process. Well, to so get into wondering. detail, I actually found a really funny gif of a tooth doing this that I used for a while. But my to- my wisdom tooth, instead of growing up, was growing into my other teeth. Oh, ouch. So like sideways. And that's maybe yeah. where my pain came from. Yeah. And then I uh, started an internet war on Twitter while I was high on drugs. But anyways. <laughs> That's so funny. I felt like a queen. I loved having my wisdom teeth out. People brought me weed tincture, snacks. Everyone paid attention to me. I really enjoyed it. Um, So that's such a twist. But it's also like, aren't there exceptions to the wisdom teeth rule? Like, I can't imagine this being like a hard and fast rule, but whatever. Benson rushes to the foster care files and needs them to see what's up and how did this happen? They have no records before she was found. She was just uh, sleeping at a train station and they brought her in and it's like, they don't, usually runaways don't grab a social security card or birth certificate. So that's, uh, it's not uncommon to not have information about a runaway. Um, but it said that she did live in a group home in Pennsylvania. So Munch calls them and they have no record of a Cassandra Sullivan, but the center remembers a girl with the same kind of sob story. So the, everyone's a little bit suspicious, but they're going to send over a photo of her school ID. And uh, it's her, it's Cassandra, but her name is Loretta Sheridan. And I want to know how Neil Bear came up with these names. This seems very deliberate. Loretta is not a young girl's name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and she was in 10th grade. So Maloney and Benson go to the hospital and inform Cassandra on all the new evidence. And she can't speak because of the jaw surgery. So she starts to like dry erase writing and um, she's sticking to her guns and saying, that's not me. I'm not Loretta. And she keeps gritting her teeth and saying, go away. And um, it just all looks painful. She's doing an incredible job acting. And they're like, you're an adult and you're in fucking trouble. You shouldn't date high school boys or be in foster care. Like, and she's very dramatic. She goes, Riley's dead. I will never date again. So maybe she is 16. And... (laughs) She starts crying and Benson's like, you need to stop crying with your jaw wired shut. You're not going to be able to like breathe. So it's just a lot. So then um, the dynamic duo go to see Novak and chat it out and see what's happening. And another alias come out and her name was Denise Pickering. And she was arrested in Detroit 12 years ago and was 16 at the time of the arrest, which means she is now 28. And then Benson killer line. She goes, you got to give it to her. She looks good for her age. The address in Detroit is a foster home. She was placed in from her abusive home. So she was in rough shape when she arrived. She is someone that had a rough life, um, but then aged out 18 and was like pissed because she loved foster care. So she just wanted to like recreate that happiness. Novak says she could go down for theft. She's been getting a free education um, and like using foster care stuff. And Stabler's like, I think what's worse is hanging out with teenagers, maybe like not money from the government, but like 
raping kids. So they got to pull her out of school and stop the foster care money from coming in. So what's going to happen to her? Benson's really concerned for her because, you know, she is 16 in her heart. So Novak says, listen, she's pushing 30 and she needs to figure it the fuck out. Back at the precinct, Stabler has a red straw in his mouth making some precinct coffee and says, oh, did you get a chill up your spine? A defense attorney just walked in. So white hair Gates gets in and he goes, hey, I need to file a report of rape Uh, for Scott. He was attacked in high school by an old ass woman pretending to be 16. And that's statutory rape. And I want her arrested and prosecuted. And they're like, well, he tried to murder her. And he goes, well, maybe that's why he did it. He was suffering from the rape trauma from rape trauma syndrome. And Stabler's pissed that this defense tactic and using like real stuff to finagle something that's not real, but it is real. What's happening. But why haven't you arrested her? And, you know, if like this was reversed in genders, there would be some arrests and you've known for weeks. Why weren't we notified? So Whitehair says you don't have just like you this discretion is fucked up and the reasons you're not arresting her are fucked up and you need to book her right now. So Novak goes to the Bowery safe haven on second street to meet with our pigtail queen. Um, and she's at, the, she's at the shelter and without it, she would have been on the street. Um, so thanks to Novak for helping her get the shelter. And she's trying to tell her to take the plea, but Cassandra's like, I didn't rape anybody. She keeps saying she's only 16 and she's like, drop it, Denise, or I'll take you to trial. And Scott will testify against you. And she's like, I won't admit it. No. And Novak's like, you can go to jail for up to three years and she just won't do it um she goes i'm gonna go to court and i'm going to clear my name and i'm going to defend myself scott is now on the stand talking about how she said she was 16 but is 28 and it made him feel sick to his stomach and creeped out fair now cassandra's in crutches pigtails a little schoolgirl outfit And she's 16 in quotes, like about to question a suspect on the stand. It's like, (laughs) it's just a really bonkers out of reality scene. I just love this child um, in court right now. Um, So they have a back and forth and she's not doing a great job as a lawyer. She's just making statements and arguing and everything's kind of wild and heating up. And Scott is really mean and talks about how Riley dumped her skanky ass and that she's a sicko and that he says he tricked both that she tricked both of them. And she's like, I didn't ask you out or come on to you. I was crying on your shoulder. And he says, you're disgusting. And she says, you're disgusting for calling Riley your friend after what you did to him and he flips out in court what an amazing lucky actor and an incredible performance and screams i only killed him because of you cool confession too late though but nice he jumps and screams i hate you i hate you i hate you you freak and all these people have to hold him back and novak's like oh, this was your plan all along, like pretending you're 16 and to do this. And she goes, no, I am 16. (laughs) So we're in like the DA's office and Novak opens the door and lets in Mrs. Hayes. And she says, hi, Denise, you don't remember me? And she goes, no, yada, yada. Basically, this woman is Jeannie, the first foster parent from Detroit. And she brings pictures and talks about a swing. And Cassandra spent hours a day on this swing. And that's a, so that's a cry for help. A swing for hours? 
you're a teen, get off the swing. Fine. Like, I just, I don't know why you would swing for hours, but then, um, she aged out and she's like, I wish I could afford you, but we just couldn't afford to keep you. And she goes, yeah, they just dumped me onto the street and I had nowhere to go. Um, she just finally had someone to take care of her and she wanted to recreate that. So the detectives come in and Novak goes, Oh, I think she'll take the plea now, but they look like they have some news. So Stabler says, I don't know if the other DAs will be as lenient and she goes wait what and there's all these other boys all these boys come forward so benson shows her a bunch of photos a guy in indiana one in maryland one from new jersey and is like do you remember them you had sex with these boys and she goes yeah they were my high school sweethearts (laughs) riley wasn't the love of your life you didn't love any of them she says i did love them i loved them all but they all got older and i didn't And the lighting design is incredible. Like any influencer would be so jealous of the lighting on her face right now. Um, And then, yeah, she's an out of her mind predator. And that's Dick Wolf, baby. And that's that. Twists, turns, so many twists and turns. Wait until you hear the real story, girl. Can't wait. Thank you for doing the research. I know nothing. We'll be right back. Listen, we're all SVU fans. We love a family drama. We love a mystery to solve. And you got to get hooked into a story with the details. You need the visuals. You need the storylines with the twists and the turns. And that is what June's Journey has and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young girl on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murderer. Dun, 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 dun. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. The game is filled with all these beautiful detailed scenes from the 20s, like lavish estates and gardens. And of course, little hidden clues are everywhere. There's twists, turns, catchy tunes. It all takes you deeper into this storyline. And if you play well enough, you can make it into the detective club. And there you can chat with other players and even compete with or against them, which is pretty exciting. And you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed. And can you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. Okay, love that. And guess what? It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. All right. So this is the story of Treva Throneberry. A lot of people have heard this story. Uh, well, there was, isn't that uh, a famous last name of a cartoon on Nickelodeon? The Thornberries? That's Thornberry. This is Throneberry. Okay, thank you. I originally thought her name was Treva Thornberry, but it's Throneberry. Um, and she was born on May 18th in 1969 in Wichita Falls, Texas, to Carl and Patsy Throneberry. Her family later moved to Electra, Texas, which is where Treva grew up. In Electra, everyone knew her by sight. She seemed normal to everyone. She waitressed at a place called the Wiffle Stop. Hello, Fred Green Tomatoes. And um, she had a couple weird moments people talk about. Like, she woke up one night in the middle of the night and told her niece there was a man outside with a gun, which was a lie. And she apparently collapsed in church at the altar, was screaming at Jesus that she didn't deserve to live. So that was a, a strange, a couple strange moments about her. But here's the deal. 
Treva and her three older sisters were all sexually abused by their uncle, Billy Ray, as children. This guy was a drunk and a predator, and he took a special liking to Treva, and he molested all the sisters, but they suspect that it might have gone, like, beyond touching and groping with Treva. Like, they all described him sneaking into their bed, feeling them up and stuff, and then they think it might have even gone farther with Treva. Like, this, honestly, this image really disturbed me, so I'm sorry that I'm describing it, but... One sister said she came home once she was older and she came home and found Treva just bouncing on her uncle's lap. Like he was truly like bouncing her on his lap in a perverted way. And he had his hands up her shirt and she wanted to like reach out and protect her sister and pull her away. But she didn't because she was so scared of this man. And like that image is just like creeps me out so much. And I just think what a sick fuck. Is that what bouncing on the knee originated from? Just perverted Well, uncles? like bouncing on the knee is one thing on the end of your knee. This guy was like bouncing her on his lap like on his junk like he was yeah but i'm just saying what's the point of bouncing anyone on a knee and i wonder if that's like an actually creepy thing that we just accept in society yeah i don't know santa's lap are we still doing this in 2021 who knows so in 1985 Treva accuses her father, Carl, of raping her. Now, there's absolutely no evidence of this. And all three sisters come forward and sign affidavits saying we don't think our sis- our, our father did this. They all maintain that their father never touched them. And Carl was like, what about the church that Treva um, is involved in? There's probably somebody there that that molested her. Um, because they're trying to brainwash her to become a missionary. And the church people were like, well, actually, she told us she was scared to be at home and would sneak out at night to sleep in an abandoned house next door or in actual pews at the church. So they were just trying to help her by getting her into missionary work. I know we have our we have our feelings on missionary work, but the church was like, we didn't hurt her. So because of this allegation against her father, Treva was removed from her family in Electra, and she was placed with a foster family in Wichita Falls, Texas, in December of 1985, when she was 15 years old, and she enrolled in the local high school there. Her foster mother was named Sharon Gentry, and she said she would find Treva at night curled in the fetal position in the corner of the room, the covers over her head. And uh, sometimes they'd find her banging her head against the wall in her sleep and saying, please don't hurt me. I'll be a good girl. So like this case, when I first heard about it, I was like, when I first saw the SVU and I knew there was a real case, I was like, this is wild. How crazy or whatever. But this girl clearly had a horrible, horrible, abusive upbringing. And to me, that's like what leads to everything else that happens afterwards. So it's, it's actually quite sad. So in May of 1986, she told her foster mom that she was considering taking her own life. And literally the cops came, handcuffed her and took her to a local mental mental hospital, the Wichita Falls State Hospital. Is that the best way to handle someone who's making, you know, statements about ending their life? I don't think so. But here we are in the 80s. Um, She was there for five months. And apparently while she was there, she said very little. She cried a lot and she walked around with a vacant stare. Um, They did give her Xanax for anxiety. They gave her Trilophon to combat what they called thought disorders and Tofranil, which was an antidepressant. So she was on drugs at the the mental hospital. And um, the doctors had no clue what was wrong with her. And they called it a characterological disorder. And I feel like if she had come in today to a hospital, hopefully they would have been like, gotten to the root of her trauma and figured out what happened. But at this point they were just like, we don't know what's up with her. She might have some kind of weird personality disorder. Anyway, um, her parents came to visit her at the hospital and they demanded she recant the rape allegation in front of her social worker and her therapist and stuff. And she refused. She was like, you're the ones that are lying. You don't love me. And I'm going to, I want to go back to my room. 
So after five months at that hospital, the doctor said that she was no longer clinically depressed, but they didn't know where to send her. And she begged to not be sent back to her parents. So in 1986, um, October of 1986, she went to Lena Pope home for troubled girls in Fort Worth, Texas. And um, she graduated from a nearby high school to that home called Arlington Heights High School um, in 1987. So she kind of spends the next decade bouncing around the country and using all these various aliases. I mean, she tells people she was a teen with an abusive background and that she lived in homeless shelters and foster homes and enrolled in all these local high schools under these various aliases. And I'll, I'll get into it. But she told a lot of people that her father was a Satanist, that her father had raped her and killed her mother. And she had a lot of different other stories about being raped by a Satanic cult. And there was a lot of, you know, the eighties was the Satanic panic, which I've talked about before. So that was, I think a buzzy thing you could talk about and say, Oh, this happened to me. And people either might not, not ask that many questions or they might get, they might believe you without as many details because, Oh, the satanic cult, like covered it up, you know, because everyone was kind of just blindly believing in all the satanic panic. Um, but she consistently made accusations of sexual abuse against um, people throughout her travels. So uh, whether those were true or not is hard to say, but they were mostly never prosecuted. And um, I'll get into it. So she graduates high school in 1987, bounces around a little bit, gets like some hotel jobs as maids or whatever. In 1993, she's in Corvallis, Oregon, as a teenager named Kylie T. Throneberry Smith and Kylie Smith, but it's K-E-I-L-I. I've never heard that spelling of Kylie, but I'm, or Kaylee, maybe, maybe it's Kaylee. And in uh, 1994, she pops up in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, where Shasta Groney was taken. We talked about that town. And um, there she told police her name was Kara Leanna Davis, but Kara with a C. She said her mother had been murdered and her father was a police officer, had been a member of a satanic cult and had repeatedly raped her. After two months in Coeur d'Alene, she vanished. Next, she shows up in Plano, a suburb of North Dallas, and there she tells police that her name is Kara with a K, a good choice. Her name is Kara Williams. She said she tells police that she's 16 years old, that she'd been born and raised in a satanic cult, and she'd been taught to honor Satan and that she would die in a lake of fire. And she said all these children she grew up with had been sacrificed and stabbed to death with daggers. And the police are just kind of like, wow, like listening to these stories. She said her own mother had been murdered by her father, who was a cult leader, um, and that he raped her repeatedly and that at bedtime she was forced to chant prayers to Lucifer. So eventually they found her out in Plano. They found out that she was lying and she vanished again. In June of 1996, she shows up as Emily Kahara Williams in Asheville, North Carolina, where she tells the police that she's on the run from a cult in Texas. And then later that same year, 1996, she's in Altoona, Pennsylvania as Stephanie Danielle Lewis. So after um, 18 days of investigation, the police contacted a girl uh, that Treva had known in Texas and found out who she really was. So in Altoona, she was arrested and charged with giving false information and sentenced to nine days in jail. After she was re released, she disappeared again and moved on to the next one. Yeah. Nine days. What? That's spring break. Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> yeah. I don't understand the like short sentence, but also she, I guess there she hadn't fully gotten into like, she hadn't fully gotten into foster care maybe. So she hadn't like been charged with like theft or, you know, maybe it was hard to charge her with anything, just like false identity. Um, a social worker in Altoona had actually gotten her parents on the phone and when they got the parents on the phone, she said to her dad, you sound like an awful nice man. I wish you were my father, but you're not. And he and she said, I'm not who you think I am. 
So after Altoona, she was in Louisiana, New Jersey, Ohio, and she would always show up at youth shelters with luggage, a teddy bear, a Bible, a flute with some sheet music and some algebra homework, just like the high school kids handbook. And Wait, um, what was the social? I don't get the parents. So the social worker got the parents on the phone. Yeah, got her actual parents on the phone. And they were like, Treva, are you OK? And she was like, I'm not Treva. Sorry, I don't know who you are. Like she was just denying that she knew them. So all in all, she used about 18 teenage aliases. And here's a fun tidbit. She joined the tennis team at every school that she that she lived in and went to. And she was shit at tennis. She was terrible. Like they said, she was always awful and like always lost her matches, but never stopped trying. So in 1997, this is like this is kind of her big stop. Okay, in 1997, she shows up in this uh, tennis thing's going to make me laugh for a few weeks. At least <laughs> she had tennis posters on her wall and stuff, too. And I remember that being very that was very late 80s, early 90s. I knew so many girls that had like Jennifer Capriati and like, you know, like uh, what? Who was Monica Sellis posters up like tennis girls were like the hot thing back then. I don't know if it was like an Olympics year or what, but in 97, she shows up as Brianna Stewart in Portland, Oregon and Vancouver, Washington. So, um, I don't well, another article said 98. So I think in 97, she was in Portland. She makes her way to Vancouver, Washington, not Canada in 1998. And, uh, she enrolls in evergreen high school, which is an ironic as fuck name. I think for, to be someone who is never aging, call, going to evergreen high school is very funny to me. Um, so she had a boyfriend for a year and a half while she was at evergreen. His name is Kenny Dunn. They went to a Sadie Hawkins dance together in matching outfits. And I'm going to describe the matching outfits to you. They were wearing maroon t-shirts, denim overalls, and Chuck Taylors. And I can put this in our stories, but the picture is quite funny. I mean, turn the t-shirt into a crop top and I'd wear that. Yeah, but with your boyfriend to a dance. I mean, it was like the ma- it was the coordination. It's the, the picture is two teenagers embracing wearing matching outfits. It's very funny. And I know obviously this case started in a very serious manner, but this is the time of my life. This is so funny. I feel like yeah. I'm in sweet like all the na- like all two in a court like all the names are very funny. All her aliases are silly. But it's just like all of this could have been avoided if they didn't like lock her. Like if they handled the abuse with the uncle. Yes. If like the uncle was put away, she got the therapy she needed, was treated like a true victim of assault. Like she could have continued to like all of this is yeah, a symptom completely. of people fucking her over. Yeah, completely. So honestly, what she, all everything she does is kind of funny because she doesn't she, her. I will I won't say she has her her crimes are completely victimless because I'll get into it, but she is mostly not hurting anyone and she's been so hurt. So it's kind of easy to be like, oh, this is silly. She's wearing these matching outfits. And while they while the song Shania Twain's You're Still the One played, Kenny kissed Brianna on the dance floor at the Sadie Hawkins dance and told him that he loved her. So they were in this very serious relationship and she eventually ended up opening up to him about her abuse. But she claimed that she was from Mobile, Alabama. Still that her stepdad had murdered her mom and that he habitually raped her and all this stuff. And that was kind of what was going on in her life in Vancouver. Also in Vancouver, she falsely accused a 47-year-old security guard named Charles Blankenship of rape. She was actually 28 at the time of this, and he pled guilty to having sex with a minor and was sentenced to 50 days in jail. So after it was exposed later that she was a fraud, a judge expunged Blankenship's conviction, but he still spent 
50 days in jail. Yeah, you know? but he thought she was 16. So he would True. rape another teen and he was fine to do it. So yeah. maybe on a technicality, fine, but like still a shady character. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so basically what was going on with Brianna, um, towards the end of high school was she really needed a social security number so she could get a job, a license, a credit card. I mean, you really can't do anything with your life without a social. And a lot of people in Washington state were trying to help her. They were trying to track down her identity, get her a social, but it was obviously very hard to track down her identity because she was like lying about all the details. Like people were really coming out to help her social workers, detectives, like people were contacting the FBI, trying to find records of this satanic stepdad who was also a cop, like, or, or that maybe that wasn't even the current story, but you know, they were all trying to find the, like follow these leads from her stories, but nothing ever panned out because none of this shit was real. Um, she even at one point took a bus to Mobile, Alabama, where a police officer drew drove her around to see if anything jogged her memory. And she'd be like, oh yeah, I remember swinging on that swing or like, I remember going to this playground or whatever. And like, none of that was true. Like for all we know, she'd never even set foot in Mobile, Alabama. At the time, a dentist in Portland, this is what ties in exactly to the episode, noticed that Stuart no longer had wisdom teeth and that the scars from their extraction were healed, which was unusual for a teenager. And um, when the social worker confronted Brianna about the dentist from like the dentist info, like, oh, do you know what happened with your wisdom teeth or whatever? Brianna wrote a five page like a manifesto about how her word is bond and she was not lying. And when she told her boyfriend, Kenny, can you believe what this social worker said about my wisdom teeth? The Kenny was like, well, maybe that is something. Maybe that's like a clue to your identity. She flipped out on him and he just kind of was like, oh, okay, never mind. Cause he loved her so much and just wanted to keep the relationship afloat. So everything was okay in their relationship until at the end of their junior year, Brianna was staying with the Gambetta family whose son was good friends with Ken, Kenny, her boyfriend. And the Gambettas had been treating Brianna like family. They'd given her a bedroom, an allowance of $10 a week. She had her tennis posters up on the wall. Everything was cool. And then in 1999, Brianna called the cops and told them that David Gambetta, the father of the family, had been spying on her while she was changing using little cameras he put in the light fixtures in her room. After a quick investigation, the police decided that these accusations were totally groundless and the Gambettas kicked Brianna out. So it's interesting, like she kind of does a lot of she does. She makes accusations against people a lot of times, almost in a in a form of self-sabotage, because a lot of times it kicks her out of the place where she is. And at home, she did it on purpose. I think she did the rape accusation against her dad because she knew it would just get her out of the house and that her dad would never believe her about the uncle. Anyway. She kept insisting she was telling the truth, but Ken now was like, I don't believe you. Like he was starting to think back on all of the stories she ever told and was like, holy shit, like what if she made everything up? So they end up breaking up. She graduates from Evergreen High School in the year 2000 with a 2.83 grade point average. And it's worth noting that she got a D in drama, which is nuts because she seems like she's a pretty great actress uh, pretending to be 16 across 18 different towns. She spent the summer after her graduation answering phones for the Ralph Nader presidential campaign, but mostly she was focused on getting that social baby. She wrote a six page letter to the governor of Washington. She got two lawyers, one in Portland and one in Vancouver, Washington, neither of whom knew what the other one was doing. So the Vancouver lawyer sued the state to force the vital records office to issue Brianna a birth certificate. He gave them, you know, high school transcripts, her state license or her state picture ID, medical statements about her mental health. 
And weeks later, the state deputy attorney general said he would not oppose Brianna's petition for a birth certificate. So she was literally all she had to do was show up in March of 2001 for a court appearance. And she was about to get a birth certificate, which would have led to a Social Security card. Unfortunately, she also hired this Portland lawyer. The Portland lawyer petitioned the federal government directly asking them to give Brianna a social number. But for this, he said Brianna had to submit fingerprints just to make sure that there was no chance she could be someone else. So on March 22nd, a week before this hearing was supposed to happen, Brianna was arrested on charges of theft and perjury because they found her fingerprints. The detective that arrested her told her she was 31 years old. She had been illegally receiving free foster care and free public education from the state of Washington. And she told the detective like, oh, you also think she'd get better grades after doing so much high school over. and That's what a lot of people a lot of people said. A lot of people said that just goes to show you how much algebra sucks that this girl took algebra like multiple times and still did not get good grades in it. Like so. But it's like, you know. Who knows what her trauma has effect on her education. Her father was a sixth grade graduate who couldn't even read or write. So like, you know, she wasn't from an educated family per se. So Brianna obviously tells the detectives you've made some kind of mistake. And he's like, no, your Portland attorney requested your fingerprints and they matched a woman from Altoona, Pennsylvania, by the name of Treva Throneberry. They obviously printed her before she did that nine day sentence. So if she hadn't hired two lawyers who were working independently, she might have actually gotten away with it because the Vancouver lawyer had her almost across the finish line. So kind of crazy. Once she was busted, a lot of people in the Vancouver area of, of Washington were divided on it. Like a lot, some people were like, oh, she's a criminal mastermind. And others were like, no, she needs mental health, like treatment, you know, like she, especially because eventually the story broke. Once this story came out, her sisters did come forward about what happened to them. And they all confirmed that they had been molested by the uncle. And, but people couldn't figure out that after like, she was busted in four different towns, she still never admitted that she was Treva Thornberry. And she must've known when she gave her fingerprints that they were going to pop. Like, it's just like, It's just kind of this um, intense delusion that she was really, truly believed she was 16 years old. And there's apparently barely any psychiatric literature that covers these the behaviors that Treva was exhibiting. Like, there's just not many stories about somebody. There's obviously imposters, but they usually fess up, you know, especially confronted with fingerprint or like blood analysis and stuff like that. I'm wondering if this is a Sybil situation where it's like disassociating and putting the things behind and having all these different personalities, but instead it's like full reality. Like I understand, I, I can see that. Like, yeah, some people said she might've, yeah. Some people said she might've had multiple personalities. Others said disassociative fugue states, both things that you've mentioned. Like, so people were really trying to figure out what was wrong with her and there were a couple of things but she was never I don't think like conclusively diagnosed but basically no one from her family really contacted her after her arrest like her sisters even like I just feel like her sisters so abandoned her like even though I know they were scared like they still didn't help her even after she was arrested and like no one reached out to her except like a cousin of hers her dad was like I didn't write because I can't read or write and the mom was like and he also was pissed because he thought she was making up the story about the uncle and it's like Dude, all of your daughters have said this happened, so you need to relook at your brother, Billy Ray. I don't know how else to say it, but this is a wild turn. Her mom, Patsy, said she didn't write because she was truly hurt by Treva abandoning the family. But she says she doesn't think Treva fully abandoned the family because she said in 1998, when her mother died, when Patsy's mother died, so Treva's grandmother died, 
there was an elderly lady sitting at the back of the funeral wearing an old faded dress. And that at the end, the lady brushed past her as everyone's leaving the funeral parlor. And Patsy noticed that it was a woman wearing a gray wig and granny glasses and had a ton of pancake makeup on her face. And she said, in my heart, I know it was Treva. Incredible. Went back to her hometown for her grandmother's funeral in disguise. Like, allegedly, goodness for SVU for bringing this story to the table. Yeah. But the fact that this is not a motion picture. That's what I said. Embarrassing for everyone in Hollywood. I've looked it up and I'm like, how has this not been a movie? Like, I bet you, I don't know, you know, movie projects fall through the cracks all the time, but. Because I'll tell you, one of my sources is an amazing article from Texas Monthly, and that'll be in our show notes and everything. But they did a very in-depth, like full, really well-written research on this whole story. And I'm like, someone definitely would have optioned that article. Like movies are getting made from articles all the time. And like this article should be optioned as a movie. Do we contact Reese Witherspoon? Like what do we do? (laughs) Yeah, it's really unexplainable why this hasn't been a movie, but it has been an SVU faux show. And there are more similarities coming up between the SVOs. So just hold on to your butts. Um, and they, they said that one good thing that did come from her arrest was that her sisters did start speaking to each other and they all started like comparing notes about the abuse and like sort of talking about their abuse that they had experienced. So I don't think that anything ever fucking happened to this pervert uncle, but at least the sisters maybe started getting some, you know, their head wrapped around their trauma and everything. Um, the prosecutor, much like in the SVU episode, offered Treva a plea bargain of two years in prison if she admitted who she was. She wouldn't take the deal. Okay. She had a court appointed attorney. She had multiple court appointed attorneys. She fired them because she thought that they were planning to argue, which they were, that she was Treva Thornberry, but that she didn't know she was committing a crime because she truly believed she was Brianna Stewart. So she fires her attorneys, and just like in the episode, she represents herself because she had actually in high school, in her time at Evergreen High, she had expressed an interest in becoming a lawyer. And so this was probably like kind of the ultimate school play for her, like that she gets to go in and defend herself in court. And she says uh, the exact same thing that Cassandra said. I also think Cassandra Sullivan, Brianna Stewart, they're like similar names in a weird way. Um, She wanted to convince the jury that she was Brianna Stewart. And she said, quote, it's very important for me to clear my name, which is something Cassandra said as well. Okay, so Brianna's Brianna slash Treva's trial began in November of 2001, and she would come into court with law books, like a stack of law books. She would have her hair in braids, and she had wore denim ankle length skirts. Lisa, <laughs> I was like waiting on Lisa to comment about it. I know that's religious uniform, but this is also what this girl was wearing. Yeah, watch uh, long long denim skirts will be in next year. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm wearing my long khaki skirt with a with a slit. I've been wearing. I know. That. I've been seeing you wearing that on it shows, and it looks great. Yeah, I start my show and I go. I'm doing a little sexy Mennonite vibe, and then everyone laughs, laughs and you know, great. <laughs> All right, I love it. But that is a Halloween costume you would buy, sexy Mennonite. Yeah, sexy Mennonite baby, crop top, khaki skirt. I just love crop tops. It's on. I don't. I love them. Yeah. No, yeah, I can tell. They're a huge <laughs> staple in your wardrobe. They really are. I want you to crop top our sex crime shirt because I don't think you'll wear that regularly. I think you should crop no, top I it. No, I love a baseball tee. Oh, long? You wouldn't crop top it? I have my swim team high school um, baseball tee in my closet right now. 
okay. from 18. What is it? 13, 18. I don't know math <laughs> from a while you, ago. Yeah. 15 years ago, maybe. That was the best part about losing weight at my parents' house was I am wearing my Victoria's Secret pink shirts. I'm wearing my (laughs) swim team shirts. You're taking a walk down memory lane sartorially. Yeah. And then um, not yet, but once I get my guest denim skirt out, my personality will never be the same. (laughs) (laughs) Can't wait. Okay. So. She's coming into court every day in the long skirts. She's smiling at the judge whose name is Judge Robert Harris. And she's got this little girl voice and she'll just be like, hi, every morning. And I think that's probably why they have this girl specifically also have this very high voice in the show. It was very like a little girl voice. Um, And then the judge apparently was like so thrown by her, like he never knew what to do with her. And like he would be like, hello, Miss Stewart, Miss Throneberry, whatever. Like he would just have like full like little. Uh, yeah, like John C. Riley would play the judge. Like this needs yeah. to this we yeah, need to do this. This needs to happen. <laughs> Lily Reinhardt can play Treva. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure some actress that's in her 30s would want to be like, yes, put me in a movie where I'm playing 16. Let me prove it to you. Yeah, Esther Pavitsky. I mean, I don't know. We got. <laughs> I'm calling our manager immediately. I, Esther Pavitsky <laughs> would be a good casting for that. Actually, yeah. she does have a little girl look. Listen, I have a gift. Yeah, I'll cast a movie. No, that's you're, so you're insulting. A no, in that, life. that is so <laughs> insulting to casting people, casting. Dra- you know, one time I was in a meeting at like CBS or something and I said casting agent and they were like, we don't go by that. Like they got pissed. Oh, they like schooled director. me. Yeah, it's casting a director. OK, but Good to know. I'm not trying to tell you what I'm just telling you that I got yelled at by like eight people in a meeting and I'm like I just got off the boat and came here like not really (laughs) but (laughs) um okay so Treva had a court appointed attorney sitting next to her all the time to answer any questions she had but she actually seemed pretty comfortable like defending herself she would just like literally go objection relevance and like she would just call it out and like smile at the judge this bitch lived our dreams our yes. dreams and the prosecutor wanted to murder her like the prosecutor they said you could just see him his name was Kinney his last name was Kinney and you could ju- they could said you could see him like clenching his fists and he was like so pissed off that she was like playing this little game in the courtroom. And so um, an investigator from the prosecution took the stand and was explaining all the complexities of like the fingerprints. And then Treva would just like kind of nod. And then in her cross-examination, she asked him all these like pointless questions about ridge patterns and like different fingers and stuff. And it was like, she was, um, it was like, she was in high school, like asking a teacher, like about an experiment is what one article I read said. So, and then like later, another law enforcement officer told the jury about the way Kylie Smith in Corvallis, Oregon had used all these aliases. She was like mystified. And she goes, why would somebody come up with so many names? It makes no sense. Like her brain was just not she, I think she's she, like the smartest and dumbest person alive at the yeah. same time. She's a hero and enemy of the state at the same. Like she's living all our dreams, but lived a nightmare. This is the most complex character who wants an Oscar. Let's go. Yeah. Let's get yeah. this going. And apparently right after she said that, she was like, it makes no sense. She like turned and like beamed at the jury. And then the officer who was on the stand just like shrugged. Cause like, I think he was like, I don't know what you're even talking about. So just like in the episode, Kinney, the prosecutor, brings in Sharon Gentry, Treva's foster mom from 15 years ago, to testify 
that she had known Treva in 1985 when she was 16 years old. And this part apparently is like really, really sad in the courtroom because like Treva comes forward, asks her to see some of the photos that she'd brought with her. And like they said, for the first time, she seemed actually really caught off guard and uneasy. And she just stared at this photo of herself and her foster mom on a beach. And then a photo of herself with her high school boyfriend from the time. And after a really long silence, she said, this Treva in these pictures, what was she like? And her foster mom said she was a very polite young lady. She enjoyed church. She enjoyed tennis. She had a wooden tennis racket. She was always very appropriate and very thankful. She always apologized if she hurt my feelings. And then Treva said, was Treva smart? And she said, oh, yes, she loved to read and really enjoyed school activities. She made good grades. And then she said, did she work hard? And then the foster mom herself was like struggling not to cry. She said she almost stood up and tried to hug her across the witness box because she just like wanted to give this girl a hug because she felt she was so traumatized and like confused, obviously, about her own identity. And um, she responded, she worked very hard. She tried hard. Treva was a wonderful young woman. And then Treva said, oh, thank you. So that was the end of the questioning. And that just sounds really heartbreaking. But for her final argument, she kind of just read out a short speech. She had handwritten in one of her notebooks. And she said, I still say I am Brianna Rebecca Stewart. I don't pretend to be anyone else but me. Of course, she lost the case. It was pretty open and I shut. I mean, what a lucky jury. What a lucky ju- Everyone that got to be there to experience this, this is a once-in-a-lifetime moment. Like, yeah. this does not happen. You do not get someone pretending to be a bunch of people representing themselves thinking they're 16. Like, I, I mean, I hope I'm not being too, like, disrespectful about all the trauma. But yeah. this is just the most sensational story I think we've covered. And we cover yeah. really wild ones and, like, imposter. But, like, this is cinematic and layered in the like the most unique way and there's so much information the fact that i didn't know about any of this to me i thought oh care maybe found a couple articles this is some little you know but maybe it's based on like to have this much like i oh my god neil bear get on the line i have questions Um, so the jury found her guilty very quickly. The judge sentenced her to three years in prison. And the problem, the judge even admitted this. He said the problem with prison in Washington state is that there are very limited mental health services available for inmates. So basically with these like nonviolent offenders after her release, like she's just going to complete her sentence and she'll be sent out the door with maybe a tiny bit of money and a number for a woman's shelter. And she'll basically she could just start this over again. Like she might just go somewhere else in the country and start this again. Like nothing's really making her better. Like this is not rehabilitating her. And Treva told the judge she would immediately file an appeal. And before she walked out of the courtroom, apparently she like looked out the window and just said, it's so unfair. It's so unfair. And a reporter who was standing nearby said, what's unfair? Are you talking about what happened to you a long time ago? And she looked at the reporter like really confused and then said, my name is Brianna Stewart and I am 19 years old. And as the bailiffs like put her in the elevator, there was like a crowd kind of gathered to see her. And she said, I'm 19. I'm not guilty of anything except being a teenager. And she's a 31 year old woman. So she was eventually released in 2001 after serving two years and three months of the sentence of the three year sentence. Um, she's a free woman as she insisted at the time of her release that she was still a 21 year old named Brianna Stewart and not a 34 year old named Treva Throneberry. And, um, when she talked to ABC 
in an interview, she claimed that the tests, the blood tests that they had like done to match her to her family had altered blood in their veins because family members had undergone treatment for cancer. And she said, when persons have recent blood transfusions and cancer treatments, it does alter the chemistry of the blood somewhat. So she's clearly been watching SVU. Like she knows that there's that episode where leukemia changes a person's blood. Um, Treva's father, whose blood was used for the DNA test, has never had any transfusions or cancer therapy. So even her excuse is like not holding up. And she said, I'm not Treva Throneberry. I just want to reiterate that I am not, no matter how much that family wants to suddenly produce their family member, no matter what they do, what they say, I am not Treva Throneberry, nor will I ever be Treva Throneberry, because you can't make another person into somebody else. You just can't. And the last thing I found about Treva was that in 2016, she was working as a hotel maid as Brianna Kenzie. And she did accuse a man of raping her. And he was like, she actually tried to steal my meth and punched me in the face. So like neither of them was ever charged, but she was fired from her job at that hotel. And I don't know what she's been up to for the past five years, but I'm sure our listeners will tell me. And that's that thrilling gripping i but i also like did she, i wonder if she like stopped at brianna because then she got caught and all this stuff happened or would she have gotten a new identity again like she's now stuck as brianna i guess but like did she like that like was brianna her well favorite? i think because brianna was where she really dug in like she had a full like three years of high school there she had a boyfriend there like they were helping her get a birth certificate i feel like that was the closest she thought to that was i think she was sort of settling into brianna stewart being her future life so i think that's why she was hanging on to it um and when you look at pictures of her like Google her. I mean, you could definitely buy that she's 16, but she also definitely buy that she's 31. You know, she looks a little older, but that is that story. And we have an amazing interview coming up. So get ready. Okay. We're really pumped for you guys to hear our chat with our next guest, because we think some of you might know him. He's been on truly every procedural NCIS, criminal mind, CSI, CSI, Miami, etc. But he also famously played Mike Newton in the twilight saga bringing any bells. And uh, some of you may know him as Luke Girardi from Joan of Arcadia as well. But today you met him as Scott Heston. And to us, he will always be the very talented actor, Michael Welch. Check it out. Yay, Michael. Oh thank my gosh. You for thank joining you so us. much. Well, thank you for having me, guys. This is, uh, this is going to be super fun. I can't wait. <laughs> A nice walk down memory lane. Yeah, always fun. Well, we're thrilled to have you. We obviously looked you up on the internet and you are booked and blessed. So many IMDb credits, 105, you're working. So congratulations. <laughs> and... Um, talk about being a child actor and your life as a child star if that's okay <laughs> of course yeah i sort of consider my career more like a like a cal ripkin type thing you just you stick around long enough eventually you're gonna accumulate some numbers not the best <laughs> but i'm i'm always just kind of there is that um, a sports reference i mean i get I, it but yeah. it's sporty sporty okay, okay. <laughs> sorry know your crowd like uh, no, I would like to say when I played softball, I had a Cal Ripken uh, glove. So I was there. Okay, good. Yeah. So I started acting when I was 10 uh, professionally and 
you know, uh, of course my parents, um, forced me into it. It was, there was a lot of parallels between uh, my life and Jackson five. No, it was actually, uh, <laughs> it was just something that I, I always kind of wanted to try, you know, as, as a, as a little kid, I mean, any sort of old, you know, home video footage was always just me performing. That's all I ever did. Um, just reciting whatever the latest thing I saw on TV was, whether it was a commercial or whatever. Uh-huh. So basically I, you know, I don't know how much you want to hear, but long story short, like my parents got me into a lo- little local acting class when I was nine, just as a, as a outlet to, um, get out some of my energy. Um, I went there for about a year, started to, you know, get a sense of, of, of it. And, uh, and we sat down, my, my teacher and I, uh, with my parents were like, we, we want to give this a shot. We didn't know anybody. We didn't know what we were doing. We were sort of lived in a, a suburb outside of LA. So honestly, like, my mom just, we, we went in the phone book, found a photographer, we made up headshots and they were not very good. Uh, it, it wasn't even like a person who did headshots. It was just like a photographer in the yellow page. <laughs> and then my mom just carried him around with her in her purse. Uh, and we were just like, Hey, whatever we're, we're playing with house money here. Like, let's just see what happens. Two weeks later, she's at the dermatologist's office, with my older sister gets to do a conversation with this woman, uh, who, ends up revealing like, Oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a talent manager for kids. I'm here with one of my clients. She's having acne issues. Ooh. It was a uh, uh, Mila Kunis, not the name drop, but just, just cause that's a fun little <laughs> tidbit. Wait, was it really? It was. Yeah. She was there with Mila. Mila was having, apparently having some acne. Uh, oh my wow. God. I love this. And then my mom goes, Oh, here, my son wants to be an actor. Gives this random woman, just my, my, my terrible headshots. And she, uh, was reluctant, uh, of course, at first, my mom is very pushy. Uh, she ends up looking at the pictures and meeting with me. I gave a terrible audition. Again, no, we didn't know anything. And for whatever reason, I don't know why this woman saw something in me. She took me on as a client. She ended up being like one of the top managers for kids at the time. She had like, you know, Hillary Duff and Brenda Song and like all these amazing clients. Wow. And she just like, she just fought for me and she got me indoors. This is back in the day when not everything was submitted digitally. You actually had to like call the casting office, convince them to see your client. Um, now, this never would have worked now. I don't know. I don't know how anyone breaks into entertainment now because everything is digital. Um, so you, there's not that like human element of knocking down the doors and making it, you know, you have to see this person. I don't care about their yeah. resume. You know what I mean? So then basically like the first job I got, it was as a, a younger version of Niles on the show Frasier. I saw that that was your first credit and it really warmed my heart. (laughs) And and all that was, is like, I just, I love doing impressions as a kid. That was like the thing that I liked to do. And I guess I, you know, did an impression of Niles better than any other 10 year old actor at the time. So I got that job. And then once that was on the resume, like that was when Frazier was in its stretch of, you know, winning Emmys every year and number one comedy on must see TV, NBC, all that shit. So at that point, uh, that opened up other opportunities. And then from there, you just kind of build it a brick at a time and you keep going. So that's, yeah, it's, it's a crazy little story. No, no two stories are alike with this stuff. Your mom is a hero to pushy mothers everywhere and (laughs) bless her. That's so awesome. (laughs) So how did the SVU audition come about? Did you watch it? You were young. I don't know if that was your vibe. Uh, Were you watching it nonstop? Did you send in a tape? Were you in New York? Like, do you remember any of that? Oh, I, I loved SVU at the time. I was yes. a huge fan. <laughs> really? I was so excited. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't know how this was season eight. So do you, do you know what year this was? 
What, what, we don't have to do podcast math. Yeah, I think it was like 07, probably. Okay, so I was young. Whatever it was, um, basically, I didn't audition for it. So here's here's what happened. I And I ended up getting a lot of parts that I didn't audition for, which sounds a lot better than it is. Here's what the reality is. I, again, Cal Ripken was around a while. I auditioned all the time, developed relationships with all these casting directors, booked very little from auditions. And that's whether I just wasn't good at auditions or the theory that I came up with later is like, I'm not like, I'm not a specific type. I, I, I don't, I'm not the obvious choice for anything in particular, but you can kind of plug me in anywhere. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. So what would happen a lot is that casting directors, when they were in a pinch, would call me. And this is, this is something that people don't understand. Like, you know, these shows are such a machine, you know, sometimes they literally, you know, you're working, you're filming an episode in eight days. You know, it's like uh, they're working 16 hours a day. Sometimes they literally go, oh, fuck, we never cast that part. And <laughs> it shoots in three days. And in those cases, that's when casting would call somebody like me, just somebody that they know, like, can do the job uh, and they don't have time to audition. Um, so that was the case here. So I got the call. With it, it, They flew me out to New York. It's also possible maybe they tried to find someone locally in New York and then didn't find anybody they liked and then, you know, went to the Rolodex. However, that worked out. Yeah. And then uh, and that's that's basically it. And then they they uh, they flew me out. And honestly, my first time meeting everyone was for the first rehearsal of the first scene that we did, which is when I, you know, come into the precinct and go, excuse me, I filmed uh, my friend getting killed. Uh, my opening yeah. scene. And that's like, I mean, that was like, it was in the middle of the, it was like my cue when I came in. And then that's when I sort of, we stopped the rehearsal for a second so I could shake everyone's hand and say hi. And then just continued the rehearsal because they, <laughs> they, they move so fast in TV. It's crazy. Was your hair already like that sort of like shaggy skater boy thing or did they do that for you? No, that was, that was natural. That was, that was the real deal. <laughs> um, and maybe that was part of it too. Maybe they called my manager and was like, Hey, is he, is he doing the shag look? Did he cut it? What's, you know, <laughs> we need shaggy. For this. <laughs> and being a fan of SVU, how did you feel when you found out you were going to flip out in court and confess on the stand? Like what the fuck? That's like the, that's like the coolest part you could get. I think. Oh, I, that's the dream. Right. I mean, um, yeah, it's, it's so funny. Cause like, you know, as an actor, obviously you're a fan of these things. That's why that's, that's why you're an actor. Cause you want to be a part of these, these things that you love. And every now and then you get to do it. And um, yeah, it was such a great experience. I have, uh, I mean, a couple of funny, like the things that I do remember, I remember at one point uh, Belzer, it was during the sequence. So it's like, they have to shoot kind of B roll footage of, Hey, look, they're being interviewed while, you know, Benson and Stabler talk about, look he's been, like they, they talk about the case or whatever but then you just sort of yeah. see on camera i'm being interviewed so belzer is interrogating me about the kennedy assassination he's accusing me <laughs> of being on the grassy knoll and he's like you know and he's like a huge conspiracy guy right so he's getting into all of his theories about it <laughs> that was his that was I his like that. we have to look like we're talking about something so that's what that's probably a go-to for him i would imagine oh my god that's so funny no one has told us that no one has told us yet like when you're doing like sort of fakey talk, what are you talking about? And that's really great. Well, if you're talking to Richard Belzer, it's yeah. about Kennedy. <laughs> How was it working with Barry Bostwick as your lawyer? He uh, he was really 
cool. He was a good guy. I re- the, the thing that I remember about him is we were, we were sort of talking about the formula of shows like this. And he had mentioned that at one point in the series, he was developing this kind of like flirtatious sort of side story, subtle thing with one of the other lawyers, uh, which sometimes can just happen naturally. Like as an actor, if you're an actor, you're performing with somebody else, like you sort of find things and that aren't necessarily on the page. And he was like, yeah, when, when that went to air, they, they took a hatchet to all that shit. Like they have no, (laughs) they have their formula. They have no time for personal development of any of these characters. It's just all about the story. That's kind of the, the, the tidbit that I remember from him. And then I remember, uh, the prosecutor and I'm, Oh, I'm going to, uh, uh, Diana is her name. Diana, Diane Neal, Diane, Diane Neal. Neal. Close. Yes. Thank you. Who is awesome. By the way, couldn't have been nicer. Uh, she gave me some really good advice when I was doing the weird sort of, you know, insecure, I'm not good enough actor thing where, <laughs> uh, she basically said, listen, in TV, it's never as good as you think it is. And it's never as bad as you think it is. And especially on a show like this, which is like, like the actor's job on SVU is basically to just be like shepherds of this story. Like, it's not about us. You know what I mean? It's about these crazy fucking stories. And we're just sort of there to like, I I mean, we, we have a a job to do to, I guess, bring our own sensibility to it or whatever, but it's not, it's, you know, this is why I don't think to do a quick little side tangent, why I don't think um, criminal intent ever really works because D'Onofrio, as much as I love him as an actor, he made it about him. And it's like, dude, it's, it's law and order, bro. This ain't, this ain't about you. Right. <laughs> like get out of the way. You don't have to be interesting. It's, it's the, the stories are interesting enough. Anyway. Oh my gosh. Wow. Love that insight. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. I'm curious, the Misty character, was that her real voice? Did she put on a voice? What was up with that? <laughs> oh no, that was, that's the real deal. Um, <gasps> wow. Misty. Yeah. I knew wow. her. She. <laughs> This industry is so incestuous. It's so funny. She was uh, the daughter of a guy named Jim Heyman, who was the showrunner on a show called Joan of Arcadia. That yes, I was on which you for, were on. Yes, I was on for two years yes. with, you know, Amber Tamblin, Joe Montagna, uh, Jason Ritter, Mary Steenburgen. Yeah, it was like an incredible group of people. Yeah. So she had a little arc on that show. So I knew her from that. Um, and oh no, that, that's, she was, she was perfectly cast in this role. Cause that is that, that's the, that's the face, that's the voice. And I think <laughs> she was like 35 at the time when we shot that. So it was like, yeah, this, you couldn't hire anyone else better than Misty for this. Oh, amazing. Um, so SVU fans were kind of lunatics, but I would assume the twilight fandom is, uh, <laughs> another level of yes. fandom. <laughs> Do you get recognized a lot? Do are there teen girls chasing you down the streets? What is uh what are the Twilight fans like? Well, what's funny about that now is that a lot of those fans gotten older and are having kids <laughs> of their own and are like passing the fandom down to their kids. So wow. it's like, you know, it's like the Matthew McConaughey thing of like <laughs> I keep getting older. Twilight fans stay the same age. I mean, it's still, you know, and I'll, I'll still have encounters with, you know, 12, 13, 14 year old girls that, that are like just as passionate about this thing as they were wow. a decade ago. Um, yeah. So that's a really, that's a pretty awesome thing to be a part of. I mean, listen, it, you know, it ain't like it was, I mean, there was a, a period there for a good five years that was absolutely insane. I don't think it affected my sort of day-to-day life but when i got to be a part of like you know all right we're we're gonna 
fly you guys to Paris and you're going to do this thing in front of, you know, whatever it is, six, 8,000. I mean, like it's pretty intense. I mean, it was, that was definitely my biggest, um, connection to, I don't know, something that was that prevalent in the, in the, in the pop culture zeitgeist at the time, you know what I mean? Like I've never, I've never quite had another experience like that one. And I'm, I'm ultimately very grateful for it. It was really, I, I, I have nothing bad to say about that experience. Yeah, I mean, I did social media for MTV for like that time period for a little while. Oh, yeah. And like we would do interviews with Twilight people and I just had to interact with the fans like forgot what they were called. It wasn't Twihards. It was like something else. But like there was like the the Twilighters, the Twilighters, (laughs) hashtag Twilighters. They were just like rabid. Like I can only imagine me as like dealing with them from behind a computer and you dealing with them in real life. It just must have been like a different a different experience, but a legendary franchise to be a part of. Yeah, it was, it was, I mean, it was like, I think three out of our four movies were top 10 on Netflix this week. So, I mean, it's still, (laughs) it's still going. Yeah. The other thing, by the way, if you want to hear the lamest brag in the history of brags, um, (laughs) we do. (laughs) I invented the term twihard. I know it didn't quite take off like twilighter. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't mean to diss your hashtag. Oh no, please. I, I feel free. Uh, no. And it wasn't even like something I intended to do. I was, I was doing like a blog at the time or something. And it was literally just a throwaway. It was just like, I, I said, you know, hardcore twilight fans or as I called them twihards. And then it just sort of took off. And then of course it became as everything does a competition, like, well, are you a twilighter or a twihard? And then, <laughs> um, I, and I will say too, I, if I'm not mistaken, there's the other side of it, which is, and I believe it was on an MTV website. So I'm not blaming you for this, but oh, um, did I do? no, no, she didn't do it. <laughs> but it was also my first experience of like the the meat grinder of 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 being sort of uh, dissected on the internet, right? Where I I, I right. went to, you know what it was? It was like. There was a photo of of me and then uh, and that guy Boo Boo and then one other person I don't remember at uh, Wango Tango or some something like that and um and I, I it was either on I think it I honestly think it was an MTV website but then the comments below it it I just I went down the rabbit hole and it was just people picking me apart like piece by piece uh. just like everything you can imagine his Oh, his, his hair sucks. His teeth are too small. His nose is this. And I was, and I couldn't, and I couldn't stop. I mean, after it was my first time experiencing this, I was like, well, let's see how far this thing goes. And after a while it became, it was like every comment was just saying how shitty I am and look and like (laughs) all the things. Um, and then, so dude, I'm telling you, man, like I got a very, 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 very modest taste of, uh, of what that was like. And, Boy, that that a, once you a certain level of fame, it ain't for the faint of heart. I'll 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 tell you that because um, you know, if you're sensitive at all, which I mean, as someone who is a creative person, I don't know how you could do that without being sensitive. Um, right. You know, it's uh, you just got to learn to compartmentalize that stuff. I I guess I never did because I didn't experience enough of it. So when it did happen, I would just go down the rabbit hole. <laughs> you know, just out right. of morbid curiosity more than anything else. <laughs> Yeah, no, 
I never read comments. Yeah, stay out um, of the comment section. <laughs> Who says that? RuPaul, somebody says stay out of the comment section. Well, what other people think about you is none of your business, is what that says. We noticed you were a sports fan on the internet. Um, <laughs> what athlete would you love to see guest star on SVU? Ooh, what athlete would I love to see guest star on SVU? Because famously, athletes are not the best actors, but I'm sure... I'm sure there's somebody you have in mind that is could at least find a body. I don't know. Well, there <laughs> a, there have been athletes. We've had Chris Bosh, Rick Fox has been on. I don't even know these. Oh yeah, Mike Tyson. <laughs> oh Ooh. Tyson, yeah, Mike Tyson was good. You know what I think would just be fun visually is one of these basketball players, somebody like uh, like Anthony Davis or Joel Embiid, just to see them sitting in one of those little chairs behind the desk. <laughs> uh, I've seen these guys up close. Anthony Davis looks like he's standing on top of another really tall man. Like it doesn't, it doesn't <laughs> look natural. Like people are not supposed to look like that. Um, it looks uncomfortable, quite frankly. Yeah, Joel Embiid is the biggest thing I've ever seen in my life, human or otherwise. I, I, so yeah, to somebody like that, just purely, <laughs> purely for the the size and then the and then the deep voice too, because. Um, and the eyebrows. Anthony Davis's eyebrows deserve to be on SVU. Absolutely. If you you would, would for sure be able to work that into the story somehow. Kara's impressed that I'm I I'm so impressed. I'm like, I don't even know who this is. I'm just imagining a very tall basketball player sitting behind an interrogation desk and that's it doing it for me. But you guys are, you you actually know who he is. Wow. I'm sure Ice would have some, some questions about his eyebrows. That'd be like a whole scene is just Ice trying to figure out how the eyebrows got like that. Oh my gosh, he was so nice. What an so it's nice to meet somebody who has been working since they were a child and isn't messed up and he's not messed up. He's cool. Or he's hiding it well. You know, we don't yeah. know what's what's yeah. going on in there. Or in that interview, <laughs> he made us think he was a totally normal dad. <laughs> yeah. And um we do want to mention that he has a western movie coming out soon with the with the legend Bruce Dern playing his father. So, um the title has not been released yet, but keep an eye out. Follow Michael on his social and check out that movie when it comes out because that sounds I don't know. That sounds like Oscar bait to me. Anything with Bruce Dern, that's a Western. But what did we learn on today's episode? I don't know. Some people feel free smacking each other with light tubes. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Trying to get a rush with light tubes. Um, I was going to say, I learned that I really want to dress up like an old granny and visit a funeral. I think that's what I learned. <laughs> oh. I think we got to write a treatment for a movie, make some money. That's what I, I learned. Yeah. I yeah. like funeral games, I guess. Um, that's something I'm into just learned yeah i mean i think we learned that just when we think we know the depths of people's trauma it can go a level deeper so just you never know where people are coming from i guess but uh yeah and we definitely learned that high school algebra is fucking impossible to pass even if you've taken it 10 times also girl all you had to do was not show up to court and like bother diane neal you know what i mean you everyone could have just lived their happy you know not the dead kid in the, but, in the tv show yeah, yeah. <laughs> no in the real life lock up every uncle i guess that's yeah. what i've learned lock up the uncles they're doing Ugh. shady shit when have you ever heard of an uncle doing a good job never my brother Colin and my brother David are their great uncles. My brother Kevin has not been around my kids very much, but my brother, those two brothers have been great uncles. It would be funny if I was fully serious. No, I know. My sister's marrying a guy named Tom and my uh, 
dad, my mom calls him T-Dog because she's a dork. And Rosie calls him Uncle T-Dog. And she's obsessed with Uncle T-Dog. Like she literally is like, when I'll be putting her to bed, she'll be like, Uncle T-Dog didn't feel good because he like had a stomach ache one time two months ago. Like she loves talking about Uncle T-Dog. So there's good uncles. I thought this was going to go into (laughs) an Uncle Tom discussion. Oh, but I said that to him i was like it's kind of fun that we're calling you uncle t-dog because uncle tom is awkward right and he was like why and i was like well because you know like the uncle tom's cabin and he was like yeah but and i was like i I mean we could definitely call you uncle tom i guess but it feels weird you can't (laughs) you cannot be screaming uh you know a great america screaming uncle tom get over here (laughs) you can't do that uncle tommy T-Dog for life is what he's Yeah, gonna it's going to have to be T-Dog. <laughs> <sighs> what else did uh, we learn? I guess it's easy to just um, lie to people if you believe it enough. Uh, join a school. Get foster care aid. I mean, I don't yeah. know. The world's your oyster. <laughs> it seems like a fun time being a liar. You can get anything you want. Yeah, it's so wild because it's like if she had not hired those two separate lawyers, she really would have gotten a, a, a social security and she would just be she would have gotten away with it. The perfect crime. It makes me terrified because I'm out there trying to meet somebody. And what if I meet one of these lunatics that are just, <laughs> you know, fake social security? Well, because there's I, I, you know, I'm on BuzzFeed a lot because I'm not really a reader. And um <laughs> I go through the lists and there was something about how like many people will com- um, confess to murder on their deathbed to medical professionals. Really? Yeah. I think they're like dying and they're just like BT dubs. I killed some people. <gasps> wow. Yeah. I guess secrets do come out on your deathbed. Well, I mean, there's that famous Brian Dennehy episode of SVU, but it took a full, full 45 minute episode for him to confess. I know. Yeah, Maloney had to like squeeze the oxygen, right? Or is that to someone <laughs> else? He had to play little games with the tubes. Totally. Um, but are we just are we just having problems making connections because your birthday was recently? I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I think it's also, just like, oh, I forgot. I don't know if the, they want to know. Listen, I did whippets and I love it. So (laughs) (laughs) we learned that yesterday. So that's also something we learned from this week's. So um, maybe I will have permanent brain damage, but I do. I did love my evening of whippets. I was um, like, do you feel stupider today? She was like, I don't know, but I did them for hours. (laughs) (laughs) Only my first time. And I don't think I'm going to do it again until New Year's. But I think I'm going to do a whip at New Year's is what I'm thinking. Nice. Um, This is not a condoning or anything like that, but it was fucking awesome, guys. But I am struggling <laughs> to make connections. And I did listen to this episode not even an hour ago. Um, The whole the whole thing. I listened. I mean, I played some backgammon, of course, while I listened. Well, I think. Yeah. Are we trying to convince our audience, our audience that we're we're recording this all in one shot? Maybe we cut this. I don't know. Who cares? No, I'm just trying to explain to them, like, clearly we learned more things from like backyard. I learned about the femoral artery. How about that? Oh, yeah. That's a pretty big one. Yeah, that's a big lesson to learn. If I yeah. ever need to kill someone, I know what's up. Get at that fucking upper thigh, baby. Yeah, I bet if you could stick, like if someone attacks you, if you stick your key in their femoral artery, if that'll fuck Yeah, but you really gotta fucking have a sharp key and you gotta know where that artery is. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of like when people think they can like fight a shark and it's like you can barely punch a person, you know, like in the water, you're gonna punch a shark (laughs) in the face. Yeah. 
No, People I'd be just dead. think um, in emergencies, they'll figure it out. I couldn't handle it. So when I was in Denver, um, a woman that might has seen better days did throw a glass bottle at my feet and try to fight me. And I just stood there frozen like someone had to defend my honor and get in front of me and help me because I just like she I would have stood there. She beat me for hours. I don't know what I would have done. Ah. <laughs> yeah, I asked Lisa, how was Denver last weekend? Pretty good. Pretty good. I hear nothing else. Two hours later, she goes, oh, yeah, this woman did come at me, throw a bottle at my feet. Someone had to come to my rescue. I'm like, this is what I asked for two hours ago. (laughs) It was very a funny detail to leave out of your weekend. Yeah, I was just like, listen, I ate cold spaghetti and I talked to great comedians and um, floated in a pool. But yeah, I did forget that I was fully attacked in the street. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, That woman had seen better days. She probably could have used a sister peg in her life. And that seamlessly segues us into our next segment. What would sister peg do? Our weekly segment where we give you an organization, a book, an article, some kind of resource where you can donate or simply learn more about a subject that we tackled in today's episode. This week, we are choosing to highlight an organization called Together We Rise. Um, It's www.togetherwerise.org. The vision of Together We Rise is to improve the lives of children in foster care who often find themselves forgotten and neglected by the public. Um, I will mention also that the foster care system now does go till 21, at least in the state of California. You can use the system until 21, probably because of issues like what happened with Treva or what happened with the girl in the episode, because um, at 18, most people don't know what the hell is going on. So to just be dumped out of the foster care system was not working for many kids. So. That's good. But this organization um, collaborates with individuals, companies, community partners, foster agencies, CASA advocates like myself, and more to bring resources to foster youth and use service learning activities to educate volunteers on issues surrounding the foster care system. So for initiatives and ways to donate, ways to partner, and more resources, go to their website, togetherwerise.org. Thank you so much for that, Kara. And next week, join us um, and watch Downloaded Child. That's what we'll be covering, season 15, episode 19. Um, so we'll get a little Amaro action, which will be nice for me. Hulu, <laughs> Peacock, <laughs> the internet, your VPNs. Uh, figure it out, guys. And, the library. Um, thank you for listening. Thanks so much. See you next week. Bye-bye. That's Messed Up is an Exactly Right production. If you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover, shoot us an email at thatsmessedappod at gmail.com. Follow the podcast on Instagram at thatsmessedappod and on Twitter at messeduppod. And follow us personally at Kara Clank and at Glitter Cheese. As always, please see our show notes for sources and more information. Thank you so much to SVU Superfan and our incredible producer, Hannah Kyle Creighton. And to our sound engineer and personal hero, Annalise Nelson. And to Henry Kapersky for our theme song. To Carly Jean Andrews for our artwork. Thanks to our executive producers, Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, Danielle Kramer, and everybody at Exactly Right Media. Listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. Dun, dun. dun. <laughs>